right, and we are rolling once again, brother Kevin. It is good to speak with you, my friend. How's life? Man, it is great. Did y'all have a good Fourth of July weekend? We did. I was a little disappointed, though. It didn't go exactly as I had hoped. We There's a uh, fireworks show that usually goes on that the uh, local country club puts on, and the community is always invited to come out and participate. If you want to eat, you got to be a member of the country club, but you can come out. They have a big field out in front of their uh, field house for their um, or their pro shop for their golf course. And they always set the fireworks off on the golf course. And it's a beautiful fireworks display. It's always really cool. There's plenty of space. You can go set out blankets and chairs and it's just, it's a good time. But because of COVID-19, they canceled their fireworks show. And the other fireworks show that we usually go to, it happened two days prior. So we missed it. So there were no Mm -hmm. fireworks except for a couple of Roman candles in the backyard. But we had some friends over and they brought their kids. They swam. We cooked some burgers and some hot dogs. I bought that griddle I was talking about last time. And uh, Oh, yeah, I, gotta I got to ask them. you too. I, I meant to ask you this before we started recording, but I'll just go ahead and ask you on air. Do you still have your grill for sale? Man, I sold it to my buddy. I got another friend, but if it falls through, I'll put you in line uh, if you're after see one. See who your real friends are. Hey, I'll tell you what. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, you're marked and all that. I don't know if I can sell a grill to you. <laughs> well, if it, if it falls through, let me know. We we want it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, dude. I will I will let you know and I will hook you up too. I'll give you the brotherhood discount. But yeah, our fourth was a really good fourth. We had a good time. We had some good dessert. Kim made a classic Southern drink that is that was found in the farmer's almanac for years. It was a staple like in the 18 and early 1900s in the country. And it's made with apple cider vinegar, with molasses and ginger. And you put all of that into a pitcher and then fill it up with cold water and serve it over ice. It's called Switchel. It is hmm. delicious, man. It is awesome. But yeah, it was a really good fourth. How about you guys? We had a great time, man. We really, we really partied the whole weekend. We had folks over Friday night at our house, our new home. And we had, I think, like 25, 26 people over Friday night. Oh, and- nice, man. Yeah, and then Saturday we hung out with some of our friends. They had a party, and there was probably 30 or 40 people there uh, we got to be around. And then last night we had some of our other friends over. And then Wednesday night we're having a summer series, and one of the speakers is a a buddy of mine who's traveling a couple hours away. So we're having him and his wife over to to eat with us beforehand. So we're busy, man. It's been a a very busy, but I love people. And and my wife and I both are talking about how we're just loving life. I mean, I'm living my best life right now. I love the fact that we've got so many friends. We're able to hang out with folks all the time. We now have this house that, that we're able to, to host more people. So we love it. It's awesome. Man, that's the biggest thing that Kim and I were looking forward to. Whenever we bought the house we're in now, the house we had before was about half the size of this one. And we just, it wasn't big enough to entertain. We just couldn't comfortably have people over. And the house that we're in now, it's plenty big enough. We can have folks over. We have folks over on the regular and we're the same way. We love people. We love having them over. We love having people to come and eat with us and hang out. So it's, it's good times, man. I, f- I feel you on that one, dude. It's life is good when you can do those things. And whenever you have a spouse that you can do those things with, it's awesome as well. And, you know, this whole time we've been talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We've been talking a lot about those things. And we're getting ready to wrap up this series. We're talking about repentance tonight. And then next week we'll be taking care of the Q&A. We'll be answering the questions that have come in. And then we'll be moving on to some other topics. But being able to share in life with a good spouse, man, that's a blessing that you just, words can't really describe how much of a blessing that is. 
It is, and it's a blessing that we hope more people are able to experience because of the truth on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Unfortunately, I have held, you have held to some very unbiblical and uh, views that were not just unbiblical, but completely out of context. And in doing that... Yeah, very destructive, uh, as we even discussed with 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, even some demonic views, because we were teaching things that that simply were not true. Now, we taught these things with the best of intentions. We taught these things believing that they were right and thinking that we were doing what the Bible teaches. But after further study, looking more at the context, understanding who Jesus is, looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament together— looking at uh, just the culture at the time, the historicity, taking in all writings, it seems pretty clear to me that we were wrong. And I am thankful that I was wrong <laughs> and that, I, that that we were able to come to these new conclusions that we believe are much more in line with, with who Jesus is, who, who God the Father and, and the Holy Spirit is, and also just what the Scriptures teach overall. So before we really get into tonight's podcast as far as the content, I just want to summarize, if it's okay with you, Lee, what we have talked about thus far. Absolutely. I think that would be really, really good just to get it out there because that'll segue in really nicely to our topic under consideration in this episode. Now, considering that we have spent about 12 hours, 10 hours up to this point, this is going to be a very short summary (laughs) comparison. So we just encourage everyone to go back and listen because I'm not going to try to defend the summary and this actual podcast episode because we've spent the last what six episodes doing that. So this is just more of a summarization of what we've discussed. So we began talking about the Old Testament and the point of the divorce certificate was to allow and to give permission to the woman to be able to remarry another man. And this was, we see under Jewish law, because under Jewish law, a man could marry as many women as he wanted. But the woman, in order for her to marry another man, she would have had to have her divorce certificate. And so we talked about the importance of that divorce certificate. And in essence, we talked about when you compare the Old Testament and the sayings of Jesus and also Paul, We have to understand all of those within its context. We have continued to emphasize the importance of context, 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 context. And what Lee and I both have concluded, as well as many Bible students and Bible scholars, people who are much smarter than we are as well, is that when you look at the teachings of Jesus, Jesus was specifically dealing with the hard-heartedness of men who were divorcing their spouses so that they could remarry someone else. They had this idea that if they wanted to leave their wife and marry someone else, all they had to do was give them a divorce certificate, and that would free them. And while by law, while by law that would free them, Jesus was telling them that that was not ever by God's design, that the divorce certificate was commanded to protect the woman, not to give them an out to be able to divorce anytime they want to. And Jesus explains that in that context. And then he goes and he gives that famous exception clause and the statement about marriage and divorce of whoever marries or whoever divorces and marries another except to be for fornication commits adultery. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about that exception clause. We spent a whole episode on how that exception clause, except for adultery, is not meant to be a restrictive exception, but it's specifically dealing with the understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24 
verses one through four, and that the most universal and commonly held understanding, and, and not just commonly held, but Lee, you and I discussed this for a while, and there was no evidence of anyone, anyone, anywhere, any rabbi ever denying the Jewish moral grounds for divorce in Exodus 21, 7 through 11 of neglect. And so we talked about how Jesus was not negating that. Jesus was not retracting that because he wasn't talking about Exodus 21, 7 through 11. He was specifically talking about Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 4. And so long story short, what, what we believe when it comes to who is innocent and who is guilty is this. Those who are innocent would be those who have been sinned against. So if your sport, if your spouse, if your sport, if your spouse has divorced you, and you did nothing of moral grounds to deserve that divorce, in other words, you weren't out committing adultery, you weren't out neglecting your spouse, but your spouse divorced you, perhaps because they wanted to go marry someone else, or maybe they were just done, and you were sinned against then if reconciliation is not attainable, then you have a right to remarry. We saw that according to Jesus and according to Paul. If you were the one who did the divorcing because of your spouse was perhaps either neglecting you or your spouse had committed adultery and reconciliation was something that was unattainable, then you have a right to divorce and remarry. Those would have been the innocent parties. Those who would be guilty are those specifically who divorce unlawfully, period. If you divorce unlawfully, you have already committed adultery against your spouse, according to Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And it's not just for the male, it's also for the female, as we saw in Mark chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, because during that time, Roman law was obviously in effect. And starting, I guess you could say, even a few years before Jesus started teaching, and of course going forward, women would have had the same rights to divorce as the the men, the man would have, and that was something that was new, but yet we see that still being covered in Mark's account. And so whether it's a male or a female, if you divorce your spouse without moral grounds, if they've not abandoned you, if, if there's been no adultery and you divorce them, you've sinned, And then if you end up remarrying, so if you divorce them in order to marry someone else, then you've committed adultery, and so has the person you've married, because as we pointed out, and specifically the teachings of Jesus, by and large, that was really the reason you would divorce. You were married to someone, you didn't want to be married to them anymore because you found someone else, so you divorced your current spouse, so you could go and remarry someone else. And so Jesus said, not only are you guilty of adultery, but also is the person that you've remarried. And the reason being is because they were a complicit party in this whole process where this marriage was conceived in adultery. So go ahead. I was going to say with that said, I'd like to just throw in a quick interjection there. That's a beautiful summary of everything that we just spent so long talking about. And it's incredibly important to understand the reason why we believe what we believe about that. It's real easy to take these comments in a vacuum and just attack these arguments as they are right here. Well, what about this? What about that? Well, we address all of those things in these previous episodes. So if you haven't listened to those and you're just listening to this and you hear that summary, you're like, well, that's not scriptural because of X, Y, Z. I promise you we have addressed it. Go back and listen to those previous episodes and you will hear us address that point. If we haven't, email us and we'll get back to you and we'll address it because we don't want to leave any stone unturned and we've done the best we can to be thorough. But even with that said, 
One little caveat I'd like to place or I'd like to uh, mention here, whenever you mention what Jesus says about the guilty person who divorces unlawfully, the person who divorces treacherously in order to marry someone else, Mm -hmm. this is someone who has someone in mind. It's like, I'm divorcing my wife so I can be with this woman. That's the purpose of it. That's what Jesus is getting at. Now, if a man just divorces his wife and there is no home wrecker, that's the term that we use to describe that other person. If there's no home wrecker present at that point, and then two, three, four, five years down the road, that man meets someone else and then marries them, but he didn't have that intention beforehand, that person that he marries is not then guilty of being the home wrecker. They are not that guilty party. That's how I understand it. Would you say that that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. And the reason that I arrived at that conclusion is because when you look at the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul, they don't contradict each other, but they're talking about different scenarios and situations, and they're talking about different points in time. So in the sayings of Paul, Paul is teaching that if you do remarry, you have not sinned. So if you are already divorced, maybe you've been divorced, as, as Lee said, maybe just two or three years. Maybe you've been divorced six months or a year. There's really no time frame that's given in the writings of Paul. But in that scenario, Paul is saying that if you have tried to reconcile, reconciliation was not attainable and you didn't divorce your spouse and run off and marry someone else, but you just divorced your spouse, you need to try to reconcile. But if reconciliation is not attainable, then at that point, if you remarry, you have not sinned. So there's a difference in those who would remarry after a unlawful divorce in 1 Corinthians 7 versus those who are divorcing unlawfully to remarry someone else, as Lee, you pointed out, because they had someone else they were going to go to in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. And so you're dealing with two completely different scenarios and situations and really just two different points in time. And so if you have divorced, if you were married to someone and you divorced in order to marry someone else, you commit adultery and so did the individual that you remarried. If, on the other hand, you just divorced unlawfully, you still committed adultery against your spouse. And Paul says that you need to reconcile. Well, what if reconciliation is unattainable? Well, at that point, you need to realize what you did was wrong. You committed adultery against your spouse by divorcing him or her. And at that point, you have the option, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 27 and 28, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 and 9, and really not even those specific passages. I don't even think have to be there because just what we know from context itself, at that point, you have a right to remarry without sinning because by law, you would have that right, biblically speaking. Uh, So the only time that the person would be guilty of adultery if they marry someone who's divorced would be if they were that third complicit party who they're uh, who, who that individual left their spouse for. So what we see then, if we really drill this down, is that you have a married couple, and if adultery is committed by one or even both parties, then you have guilt and you have a scriptural, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A scriptural justification for divorce. And the person who is innocent in that situation It's committed no sin. The person who has committed the sin of adultery, they are the ones who are the sinner. If you have neglect where the needs of the spouse are not being met, according to Exodus 21, as that comes forward into the New Testament time, as we see Paul mentioned, then that person who is neglecting their spouse is guilty. The innocent party that is being neglected has scriptural justification to divorce their spouse. 
if abuse is taking place, which is neglect to an extreme, the person who is guilty of that abuse is guilty of sin. The person who is being abused, who is innocent in this, has the scriptural justification to divorce their spouse. If a divorce occurs under those circumstances, the person who has sin is the one that bears the brunt of that sin. They are the ones who bear the responsibility for that sin. They are the ones who are in the wrong. If there is none of those things taking place and a person divorces their spouse for no reason whatsoever, they are committing adultery against their spouse, period. Now, in all of those cases, in all of those cases, we all agree, even back in the day, whenever you and I held to that different position, that the innocent party, quote unquote, has the right to remarry, but we would say the guilty party does not. One of the biggest changes in our perspective is, is that the guilty party should seek to be restored to their spouse. They should seek reconciliation with their spouse. If they cannot attain reconciliation because maybe their spouse has married someone else or their spouse refuses time after time after time after time to take them back or their spouse has died. If for whatever reason reconciliation is unattainable, then that guilty party has the right to remarry. And that's what's going to make people's hats fly off of their head. That's what's going to make their monocles fall off of their face is that statement that the guilty party has the right to remarry and it is not a sin for that guilty party to remarry. Now, a lot of people will say, well, that's not right. That's not right at all. And we're going to get into that in this episode. We're going to talk about why that is the case. But part of the idea of why the guilty party doesn't have the right to remarry is because some people believe that that's a penalty that is given to that guilty party, that that's a natural consequence or that that's a spiritual consequence that that person must face. And we'll talk about that as the episode goes on. But if that guilty party does remarry, one of the things that I used to believe, and I know that you used to believe, is if the guilty party remarries, well, then they need to repent. And that repentance includes divorcing their new spouse. They must divorce their new spouse in order to express that repentance as an expression of their repentance, that that's what repentance requires. But when you look at it contextually, whenever you look at the scriptures, such is not the case. And that's what we're going to be spending this episode discussing. Well, and let's kind of get everyone on the same page, because if there's people listening to this, they may already have been turned off a little, especially if this is their first episode listening. And here's here's actually the point that I want to bring out is I do not know of a single Christian or a single scholar or a single writer ever who has addressed marriage, divorce, and remarriage, who does not believe that there are marriages that are entered into through adultery or that there are not marriages that are entered into or conceived in adultery. Okay, we believe that. Lee and I both believe that. Uh, I, I don't know of a single, uh, you know, I mean, there. I'm sure there may be some out there who define marriage differently than we do, but as far as everything I've studied, whether you believe in the no exception clause, whether you believe in exception for fornication exclusively, whether you believe in the exception clause of the Jewish law that Lee and I both believe that uh, Jesus and Paul established and did not retract or negate, whatever you believe, we all still believe that there are people who have sinned 
because they have the the way in which they divorced and they remarried. We all believe that. And yes, one hundred percent. And and that's where I want to Lee and I both want to be crystal clear that when we talk about we think the guilty party has a right to remarry, not the guilty party who Jesus is talking about, because that's a completely different guilty party. And the phrases innocent and guilty parties can be very confusing because people define those differently. So once again, I want to reiterate, if you were married and you divorce in order to marry someone else, then you committed adultery and so did the person that you remarried. But if you divorced and you didn't remarry, you just divorced because you were tired of your spouse, you still committed adultery. The difference, though, is that you were not divorcing in order to marry someone else. So there is not a there was not a third party in your adultery. There was not. And people are saying, wait a minute, does, does there have to be a third party? No, go back and listen to, uh, I'm not sure which episode it is, I believe the first one we did on the marital teachings of Jesus in Matthew yes. chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Because you sin whether you remarry or not. If you divorce unlawfully you sin <laughs> you are you are you have caused your spouse your ex-spouse uh, to be adulterated you have caused them to be the victim of your adultery but as we already discussed in Paul's scenario what do you do if that happens well you need to go and be reconciled at that point if reconciliation is no longer attainable then if you marry you've not sinned and neither has the person you've sinned because you're dealing with a completely different situation and point in time than you are when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, all of that aside, we all believe there are people who have who have conceived their marriage in and through adultery. So we're all on the same page with that. No matter what you believe, you may be 10 times in your mind more conservative than we are, but you believe that and we believe that. So regardless of what you believe it takes to get into that, just assume we're talking about someone who is in that situation. Someone has remarried. They did so in a way that you believe was wrong, in a way that we believed was wrong. They did it because they had to break up a current marriage unlawfully in order to do it. And so their new marriage was conceived in adultery according to Jesus. So the question is, what do they have to do in order to repent? Now, both Lee and I believe that before that person had to divorce again in order to repent. So if you were in a marriage that you should have not ever gotten into, then the only way to repent of that, and I even used to say based upon common sense, would be to dissolve that new union. Otherwise, as long as you are continuing in that new union, you are continuing in sin. So I want to deal with some of the alleged arguments that I used to use, and then Lee's going to bring up some that he used to use that we really, we've kind of uh, brought these together, um, and really both of us have used these. These are pretty popular arguments. So the first one is that repentance by its nature just includes divorce if you are in a marriage that was conceived in adultery. And so this idea actually assumes its own stipulation that in order to repent, you must divorce because by definition, that's what repentance would look like. The problem with this is that it's all circular reasoning. Those arguing that repentance includes divorce would be obligated to prove why and on what basis. Whenever we put uh, specific stipulations on how to repent of any given sin, we are obligated to prove that those specific stipulations are indeed biblical and necessary. So, for example, Lee, let let me just break this down. Imagine if I said that every single person 
who has ever had a hateful thought in his heart must repent. Well, I would agree with that, and you would agree with that, right? We're all on the same page. If you've had a hateful heart, uh, a hateful thought in your heart, you need to repent. But then what if I said, well, by nature, that includes going down forward at your church, publicly letting everyone know that you had a hateful thought, and then you need to find that person, whoever you had that hateful thought against. You have to take them out to lunch at a place of the person's choice. You need to let them know that you had that hateful thought, but that you're sorry and ask them for forgiveness. And then you need to give them a $20 bill. <laughs> now, we, we, we would look at that Some and say- Some of us would go broke in a flat hurry, man. <laughs> well, we would look at that and we'd go, we would say that's, that's silly. Right. That's ridiculous. And the reason why that's ridiculous is because I have no reason to believe that all of those stipulations should be included in repentance. So while that is obviously uh, uh, an exaggeration, a hyperbole of uh, an extreme example that just shows kind of how ridiculous putting stipulations in repentance could actually be and, and how, how nonsensical it sounds, Really, the same is true when we try to put any kind of stipulation on repentance without allowing the Bible to define what repentance looks like in any given situation. So it's not enough just to say that repentance demands you dot, 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 dot. You ha- if you believe that repentance demands something, if you believe that repentance is included in, or, or something is included in repentance, if you believe that there are these specific stipulations— then we would be obligated to explain why and what those specific stipulations are. Yeah, a lot of times, though, whenever we put stipulations on repentance like that, like, well, by saying that repentance by its nature includes divorce, then we need to prove that that stipulation is a requirement. But but we don't really go that far. We just assume that that's the case, or at least I did. But... It's it's so interesting to note, though, this idea that, well, you know, you need to prove to me that it's wrong to give someone a $20 bill and take them out to lunch and everything else. It's like, well, Bubba, you got to prove that that's what repentance looks like in this case if you have a hateful thought. I mean, you need to go to the scriptures. You need to check this out. And, it, and once you put that shoe on the other foot and you turn that burden of proof around, well, it gets it gets real in a hurry. Because basically we're operating on an assumption. It's a presupposition that the remarriage in and of itself is sinful. Of course, accepting what Jesus said about you're divorcing someone in order to marry someone else. And that certainly happens, but in many cases it doesn't. And in those cases, you know, saying that repentance requires further divorce, you're in and of in and of that in and of itself, that argument is presupposing that that remarriage is sin in and of itself. And it isn't not in every case, but anyway, what else, do you, what other comments do you have on that one? Yeah. So, and, and you're right, you know, this is just assuming that the, the remarriage shouldn't have taken place. And, you know, just assuming that let's, let's just look at all of those, you know, the, these, these different arguments here. So the second argument is, and, and when I say second argument, these are kind of arguments that I just wrote down myself that I used to use. I kind of went back to some of my own writings and some of the different articles that I used to publish to explain why I believe. So that was really my first one is I would just argue that repentance demands divorce. And that's just not the case. You you would have to prove that that stipulation is included in divorce. You couldn't just assume that it is. But the second one is and, it, and this kind of goes hand in hand with the first one, and that is that one cannot repent 
without restitution. Now, the fundamental problem with this argument is that while restitution may sometimes be a part of the repentance process in some situations, repentance does not always include, much less necessitate, uh, restitution. And let me just give you a few passages, and we can discuss these as as we go through them. So while some argue that restitution is a necessary part of repentance, there's a lot of passages that need to be taken into consideration so that we can get the bigger picture. Let's take Matthew 18, 23 through 27, for example. In this passage, Jesus teaches a parable, and we know this parable as the unforgiving servant. And in this story, a man owed a very large debt, yet he was freely forgiven without having to pay any of it back. Now, during that time... If you owed somebody something, you had to pay them back in full in order to be forgiven of that debt. And if you were not able to pay it back in full, then what they would typically do is they would take you or they would take your your spouse or they would take your children and they would make slaves out of them until that debt was paid off. So that could have been five years or 10 years or 20 years or depending upon how much you owed. Well, in this story, the amount that this man owes is such an astronomical amount that he could have never paid it back. And yet he is freely forgiven. He's not required. He's not asked to give anything back. He is freely forgiven. So in this parable, Jesus teaches that when we are forgiven, When we repent, and by the way, this man said, I'm willing to do what it takes. I'm willing to pay it back, but he was freely forgiven. So repentance doesn't always require restitution. Uh, Another example, and these are just several here. I'll go down the list, Lee. So if you want to interject any point with any of these Bible verses, just feel free to do so. But we see that. I've got a quick comment I'd like to make. Just this idea of the the wicked servant. He was wicked because he was forgiven this large debt, but he wasn't willing to forgive his fellow servant who owed him, you know, what, something between $20 and $50. Yeah. He owed like 10,000 talents, which was somewhere between like $1.3 and $1.8 million. You know, it was just some astronomical amount of money that Jesus uses. The point is, is it was an amount he could never pay. And what's interesting is, is that whenever we consider repentance, whenever we consider our own salvation, Whenever our souls are saved from the muck and the mire of sin, and we have been raised to walk in that newness of life, and we have been transformed and renewed in our mind and conformed to the image of Christ, whenever we have repented, and no one would argue that repentance is not a part of the process, or maybe very few would argue that it's not, but most people would not argue that repentance is not a part of the process of salvation. It's it's Repentance is part and parcel, part of our soteriology. And in that case, whenever we repent of our sins, well, there's no restitution that we make. Now, we may get into penal substitutionary atonement and the Christus Victor, and we may talk about that in a future podcast. But the idea is, is we even recognize that whenever it comes to our own salvation. We recognize that our repentance in that sense does not involve restitution you know, in God's sight, maybe you could argue that Jesus paid that price, but the people that we have wronged before we obeyed the gospel— We don't have to pay restitution to all them. We don't have to go and say, okay, so this little boy that I kicked on the playground when I was eight, I need to go find him. (laughs) And this little girl that, you know, I called a bad name whenever we, I asked her to go to the prom with me and she wouldn't go with me. I need to find her. And then this guy that I cut off in traffic, if I can find the, the camera footage of his tag, you know, I need to go and do that. And then I ran this toll booth one time because I didn't have enough change. So I need to contact the state authorities. 
No, we understand that we've been forgiven of that and restitution isn't required there. We get that there. So the same thing applies now. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of biblical illustrations with this. For example, in Luke 22, 54 through 62, Peter denied Jesus three times, but once he repented, he wasn't required to go turn himself into the high priest or the authorities to inform them that he had lied to the servant girl of the high priest and that he really knew Jesus. Jesus didn't say, well, Peter, I know you're sorry for what you did, but you need to now go back and turn yourself into the authorities and let that servant girl of the high priest know that you lied to her so she can go and tell the high priest so that you now can be punished for your for your lying. Uh, Jesus didn't require that. When the tax collectors asked John the Baptist what they needed to do to repent, he didn't say, give all the money back to the people you cheated. He told them to no longer collect more than what is required. We see that in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 13. When the soldiers asked John the Baptist what they needed to do to repent, John told them to no longer extort money or falsely accuse. Once again, nothing is said about making amends for all those they had previously extorted or falsely accused. And we see that in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 14. And finally, we see that the tax collector in Jesus' parable that beats his breast and confessed his sin was justified without any mention of making restitution, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Now, some people may say, well, we don't know, though. Maybe he did. But we see in Luke 23, 43, the thief on the cross was freely forgiven by Jesus. Now, he didn't get down from that cross and make restitution before seeing Jesus in paradise. So (laughs) there are so many different passages. Ephesians 4, 28, the Ephesians who had stolen, they were told to steal no more. So we see this over and over and over and over and over, this idea that you know, and that's why I talked last week. You had brought up the idea of, of if someone, you know, steals a car. Well, they need to give it back. And and yeah. it's this it's this idea of of first of all, it's a bad, it's a horrible parallel in my opinion. <laughs> but it's it's a really hey, dude, bad I parallel. Was, I was rolling on the fly, man. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> sometimes you're gonna hit a home run and sometimes you're gonna, you know, hit a single and get tagged out before you hit first. It's just the way it goes. But but the point is, is that the only times we see restitution or, or someone paying something back is is when it was feasible, is when it was practical, is when it was beneficial, and when it was voluntary. And yeah. uh, we, we see an example of this, Lee, in, in Zacharias. Tell us a little bit about, or not well, Zacharias, or Zacchaeus. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, that's one of the examples that I would always use whenever I would make, because I would make the same argument that you're making about restitution and repentance requiring restitution. We remember the story of Zacchaeus. You know, he was the the short little guy who wanted to see Jesus. He couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed the sycamore tree. You know, we got that little kid song that you sing in Sunday school or whatever else. And to see what he can see. To see what he can see. I'm, I'm literally like crawling up my arm right now. My little fingers yeah, dude, are going up my yes, arm. Yes, you and me both, man. It's awesome. But but people say, well, Zacchaeus is an example of restitution being made as part of his repentance. And the problem is, is that that story is taken out of context to make that point, because Zacchaeus wasn't talking about how he would now repent by making restitution. Zacchaeus was accused of being dishonest. And whenever Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. Today, I'm going to come and eat with you in your house. Let's go. Let's get some grub. And people say, whoa, hold up. Look at this Jesus fella. He's going over yonder and he's eating with this tax collector. Oh, he cheats people. Did you know he cheats people? Because that's what tax collectors did. If there was an amount that they needed to collect on behalf of the Roman government, 
everyone hated tax collectors. They especially hated Jewish tax collectors because their Jewish brethren were working for the fo- for this foreign power that was over them to basically, in their mind, extort money in the form of taxation from them to give to the Roman government. And a lot of these tax collectors, let's say you owed a 10% tax, they would collect 13% and keep that 13% for themselves or keep that 3% for themselves. And they collect 15%. And then if you refuse to pay it, they can say, oh, you're not paying your taxes and call the Roman government. And then the, the soldiers would come and arrest you. So these people are just assuming that Zacchaeus is a dishonest man. And you'll notice in the scriptures, whenever that accusation is made, he says, oh, no, 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 I am not a dishonest man. I don't take anything extra from anyone that I collect taxes from. Because a lot of people say that, well, Zacchaeus, at this point, as part of his repentance, he went back and found all them people he had cheated and restored to them fourfold. No, what Zacchaeus is saying is, is that he was, that was his common practice. That's what he did. If he found that he made a mistake in his calculations, that he would then restore to those who he had unwittingly taken from fourfold. Zacchaeus is defending himself in this passage. He's not declaring what he's going to do moving on as a feature of his repentance. He's stating what his practice was in the event he messed up. You would, would you say this would be an example of living above reproach? Yeah, he's living above reproach and he's going above and beyond because restitution in this sense, you know, in this way wasn't commanded in Roman law. It wasn't commanded in other law. It was a personal choice that Zacchaeus made if he found he had wronged anyone. This demonstrates what restitution might look like, but it isn't illustrative as a demand for all time. It doesn't illustrate that for every sense of sin that this is what restitution involves. Now, like you said, restitution is often prudent. It's often something that is necessitated, but it's not required, especially whenever it comes to to goods or monetary things, whenever it comes to money or different things, like if I stole a car from somebody in that example that I used it you obviously didn't like. I'm a little hurt. Feelings are a little hurt. I'm cut a little bit here, Kevin. Well, and and what, what, what illustrations like that also don't take into consideration is what if the person forgives you, you know, and that, that to me is what's so powerful is, um, I know personally, you know, you and I have had conversations where you have given people money before and they, it was with the idea that they were going to pay you back and, and they didn't. And instead of you taking them to court, instead of you holding them accountable, you forgave them of that debt, which means that they don't have to pay you back any longer. And so when people talk about repentance and restitution and these different concepts of justice, what they oftentimes forget is forgiveness, which is what Jesus is all about. And so the best way that I know how to put it is that restitution focuses on the past and repentance focuses on the future. So I change going forward. And that's why we that's why I listed all those different examples when the the soldiers, when the tax collectors, when they came to John the Baptist when he was preaching and they said, "Well, what what do we need to do to repent?" He said, "Well, no longer do these things." No, in other words, this is a future thing. What you do is you make your mind up today to be a different person. This isn't something you going back in time to try to fix because in many times you may not even be able to do that. And so there's an argument though that kind of goes with this. And to me, this is where the rubber meets the road in many cases. And that is people quote Romans 6, 1 and 2 that says you can't continue in sin that grace may abound. And so if you're continuing a marriage that was conceived in adultery, then you are continuing in sin as long as you continue in 
the marriage. So I want to say that again. Okay. So the idea is that Romans 6, 1 and 2 says you can't continue willfully in sin that grace may abound. We, but we would agree with that. If you're a murderer, we would tell you stop murdering. So we wouldn't say, well, you know, just keep murdering. <laughs> if you, if, <laughs> We would understand that repentance means you have to stop murdering. So the argument that I used to use was that if you are in a marriage that was conceived in adultery, then the only way you can repent of that with is by getting out of it, because as long as you continue in that marriage, it's no different than a man who is continuing to murder. That preaches really, really good. I mean, you can preach that. That sounds good to a lot of people. The problem is, is that this argument mistakes the new marriage with the sin itself instead of the result of the sin. Yeah. So the, the new marriage in and of itself is not an adulterous marriage. The way in which the marriage was conceived was adulterous. So the new marriage is the result of the sin. It was the way, it was the process in which the new marriage was obtained that was sinful. So the marriage was obtained in sin because it was conceived in adultery, but the marriage itself is not sinful. And so let's let me give some examples because if you're out there thinking, well, wait a minute, Kevin, what exactly do you mean by that? You know, is is that not the same thing? Well, something can be obtained in sin, but continued in righteousness. So let let's talk about some of these biblical examples we see in Scripture, Lee. Yeah, well, I think the one that comes to my mind initially would be Joshua and the Gibeonites, because we remember with that Canaanite conquest, the Israelites were under very specific instructions to go into the land and obliterate everybody. Yeah. Do Wipe not intermarry. <laughs> Do not make don't covenants. Make, don't make, you don't make treaties with these people. You don't make covenants with these people. You don't into, enter into contracts with these people. You go in there and you kill them all. And we're going to do a future podcast about this concept and this idea in light of a gracious God. It's going to be a great one. So you guys hold on to your hats and stay tuned for that one. It'll be coming soon. Well, soonish. We have some other things in the works first. But the idea is, is that you go into the you go into the land and you obliterate them. You take the land for what it is. You give no one any quarter, and you go in and after you wipe them out, the land is yours. Entering into a covenant with any of these people would have been a sin. It would have gone against the specific explicit instructions that God gave them. Going in and marrying and intermarrying with these people would have gone against the explicit instructions that God had given them. But the Gibeonites, they utilize a different strategy. You have the Israelites rolling over these cats, you know, Jericho, then I, and then these other cities. They're going in and they're capturing these cities. They're conquering these cities. They're slaughtering countless numbers of people. And the Gibeonites see him coming and they purport within themselves there in Joshua night, you know what? We're going to use a different strategy here. We're going to go and deceive Joshua. And we're going to pretend a lot. We're poor folks that we don't have anything. We're not going to stand against them. Just let us live in peace and everything else and promise you won't kill us. And we won't get in your way. And just, you know, they're, they come to him in shabby clothes and everything else. You read about this in Joshua uh, chapter nine. So they come to Joshua. Joshua has mercy on him. He enters into a covenant with them, but lo and behold, they fleeced him. They pulled a fast one. The Gibeonites were actually a fairly powerful people in this area. Joshua, even though these people came across as poor, Joshua entered into a covenant with them. He entered into a contract. And this covenant was binding. 
even though it was established under false pretenses, it was still binding and it was still intact. Yeah, and for them to have violated this new covenant they made would have been further sin. So it was wrong for them to enter into this covenant. Joshua says it's wrong. God says it's wrong. Uh, you know, the Jews recognized this was wrong. And I, I think what you brought up is so powerful because this isn't just Joshua entering into a covenant unlawfully, but this is Joshua entering into a covenant unlawfully in ignorance, and he is still expected to keep it. And so this is such a clear example of, of a covenant that was conceived in sin, but it was continued in righteousness, so much so that hundreds of years later when, when King Saul tries not, it does not live up to this covenant, God sends a famine on the land. And so God expected Joshua to keep this. Should the covenant have been made? No. Was it, was it wrong? Yes, one hundred percent. It was the, sin, pure, plain, and simple. The, the way in which this covenant was entered into it was sinful. It was wrong. It was unlawful. However, was it wrong for Joshua to keep the covenant with the Gibeonites? The answer is no. In fact, it would have been wrong for him not to have kept it because something can be conceived in sin, but continued in righteousness, and that's what we have here in this passage. Yeah. Another example that's pretty prevalent and pretty prominent would be the idea of David and Bathsheba. I mean, you want to talk about a covenant entered into in sin? <laughs> Holy smokes. I mean, you can check off how many of the Ten Commandments that David violated here. I mean, he, he at least four, murder. at least yeah, four. He committed murder. He lusted in his heart. He coveted his neighbor's wife. I mean, David, he's not he's not batting it too high of a percentage here. And it's funny, I keep using baseball analogies, and I don't even like baseball. But, but I mean, the fact remains, David, he goes out on his balcony, he looks down, he sees Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, and he's like, oh, hubba hubba. He calls for her, they have intercourse, and she conceives a child. And David's thinking, oh no, I'm going to be found out. So he calls Uriah, her husband, back from the front lines of war, has a big feast. He gets Uriah drunk so that Uriah, in hopes that Uriah will go home and lie with his wife and so that she will, you know, conceive, quote unquote, and then David will be covered. But Uriah's a good dude. He's like, I'm not leaving my men behind. I'm sleeping right here with them. If they can't go home to their wives, I'm not going home to mine. And David's like, oh son, this isn't good. So then he sends Uriah to the front lines. <laughs> has Uriah killed? And then takes your narration, by the way. What's that? I said, I love your narration, by the way. Oh, don't you though? Oh, yeah. son. <laughs> oh, son. Well, <laughs> well, this is <laughs> well, you're getting kind of a window into a little bit of my preaching style whenever I teach. Because if I'm just going to summarize a point, or if I think of a point on the fly, <laughs> this is how I kind of sum it up. So I'm yeah, glad you stopped you, with "son." We didn't. We didn't say of what. You know. Yeah. Oh uh, <laughs> no, I've got a funny story. I'll tell you later off the air. It, it's it's hilarious. You'll appreciate it. But in any case, he has Uriah killed. So he commits murder. He commits adultery. They conceive a child. He takes Bathsheba as his own wife. You can't argue that this was not a marriage conceived in adultery. This absolutely fits every possible descriptor of a marriage that was conceived in sin. Well, and when you look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, it actually, when Nathan, the prophet, rebukes 
rebukes David for this. He actually says, you have sinned by taking Bathsheba. And it even says the wife of Uriah, even though he was dead, it was still considered wrong because of how he did it. And and here is how I, now I'm going to be honest with you. This passage used to give me all sorts of trouble when I held my previous position. And the way that I used to try to skirt around it and the way that I've heard other people skirt around it is first of all, by claiming that and this is going to sound silly, but that this is the Old Testament and that God once overlooked ignorance, but now he commands every everyone everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. The, pr- the problem with that is that this was not done in ignorance. None of what David did was in, in ignorance. If there is a willful sin that has ever been committed, it would be the sin that David... I guess you could say performed with Bathsheba are the multiple sins that he yeah. committed with Bathsheba. All of this was extremely planned. There is nothing, no ignorance about it. Furthermore, it wasn't David's ignorance that God overlooked. David repented. We see a whole Psalm of his repentance in Psalm 51. It's recorded there in Psalm 51 yeah. and God forgave him. So this is not, we cannot say, well, this was a time when God overlooked ignorance and David just did this in ignorance, but now God's not going to overlook ignorance the way he did in the Old Testament, which by the way, that's a complete misapplication of that verse anyway, but that's a different story. But that would, even if you believe that, you would have to take the proposition that David did all these things in ignorance. David did not do these things in ignorance. David did repent and David was forgiven. And yet he continued his marriage with Bathsheba and God even blessed their marriage. If you continue to say, I mean, they, that's how Solomon came about. And so one thing too, that I, another argument that I've heard, and I, to me, this is, this really bothered me when I used to use this, cause I used to use this argument and that is, well, Uriah was dead when David married Bathsheba. <laughs> So if we take the, the, this is legalism at its finest, folks, to say that if David would have married Bathsheba, then, uh, you know, in, or, or if a divorce would have taken place and David would have married Bathsheba, that God couldn't have forgiven that. But because David was smart enough to have, to have Uriah, Uriah killed, killed God rewards him with allowing him to stay in this marriage. Now, when we just think more than two minutes about the logic of what we are implying that God is all about, we'll drop that like like a hot cake, right? I and mean, we'll drop that like a hot yeah. potato. I don't know a hot cake if you drop a hot cake, but a hot potato. You'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll drop it like a hot potato. And the reason is because it's so, it's so nonsensical to say that God can forgive a unlawful divorce and a, a marriage that was obtained in adultery, but God uh, or God can't forgive that, or He can forgive it, but you can't continue in that marriage. But if you kill or have someone's spouse killed, then God would allow you to continue in that marriage. It's absolutely nonsensical, absolutely ridiculous. This is a clear passage, a clear case study that a marriage can be obtained and conceived in sin, but continued in righteousness. Yeah. And you had in an article that you had written, and one of the examples that that you have used, remember we've talked about this before too, is the idea of unwed pregnancy. You know, the process that leads to the conception of a child, if it is performed, if that is an action that is performed outside of the confines of marriage, it's considered sin. 
And that process is considered sin, but being pregnant in and of itself is not considered a sin. Carrying a child and giving birth to a child is not considered a sin. So why don't you why don't you elucidate that a little bit more because you put that way better than what than what I do. Yeah, so I I had an article I wrote a while back called "Unwed Pregnancy Is Not a Sin," and obviously that's clickbait because everybody's like, "Wait a minute, Kevin thinks you can have sex out of wedlock," and <laughs> so I, I knew that would get everybody's attention. But being pregnant out of wedlock is not sinful. The process that got you pregnant, that sex out of wedlock, was sinful. The the whole process that led to you getting pregnant was sinful, but not being pregnant. And even in John 8, 41, we see that when a child was conceived, especially among the Jews, out of wedlock, it was considered an unlawful or illegitimate child. Now, this didn't mean that the parents had to abort or kill the baby, and it didn't mean that the parents had to give it up for adoption in order to repent. The child was conceived in sin, meaning that how the child came about was through fornication. But the parent-child relationship wasn't fornication. The parent-child relationship could continue in righteousness. They didn't have to cease their parent-child relationship simply because that relationship was obtained and conceived in sin. And one of the ways that I like to put it is, if I said whoever has a baby out of wedlock commits fornication— we would agree with that, but we would also understand it isn't actually having the baby or keeping the baby that's fornication. It's the way in which that baby came to be through fornication. Yeah. And when you look at marriage, divorce, and remarriage, Jesus is condemning the unlawful process of how the new marriage is obtained as being adulterous and sinful. It's the process. And the reason why he calls it adulterous is because you gave a piece of paper to your spouse thinking that that just all of a sudden made everything okay. And Jesus says, no, it's not. You, you basically have legalized the idea of, of adultery. And Jesus is saying that that is not right. This whole process of how you entered into this new marriage was wrong. It was sinful. It was adulterous. This new marriage was conceived in adultery. But the new marriage itself, the new relationship itself is not adultery. But the way, the process that led to that new marriage is. And, and that's hard for a lot of people to, to wrap their mind around, not because the concept is difficult, because we can understand it in all the examples we just gave, but because we're so used to saying things like an adulterous marriage, which is, by the an way, an ox, that's an oxymoron anyway. There's no such thing. Jesus wouldn't have even called it an, an, a, mar a marriage. Um, he, he, he would have said it's no marriage at all, but he recognized it as a marriage. It was a marriage that should have not been entered into, but it was a marriage nonetheless. Just like a child that was, born, that was born or conceived out of wedlock was considered an illegitimate child. It was still a child. It just should have not happened the way it happened. That new marriage should have never been, but now that new marriage is. So what do you do? And we're going to talk about what you do here in a moment, but you cannot what argue... Yeah, what do you do? What do you not do? And that's that's the point we're getting at here. Yeah, well, and the actual continuation of sin would be the act of divorcing again. That that would be a continuation of the sin. So, just like the Gibeonites, if once this once this covenant was that that Joshua made with them, once it was in effect, once Joshua made it, God didn't say, "Well, you shouldn't have made it, and it was made under false pretense. Therefore, in order to repent, you need to get out of that covenant." No, God said, "Well, you made that covenant. You shouldn't have made it, but you did. You need to keep that covenant." David and Bathsheba, you shouldn't have married Uriah's wife. You are, uh, you know, you shouldn't certainly shouldn't have had Uriah killed, 
But you did. It was sin. It was wrong. You took her to be your wife. You sh- the way in which you did it was wrong. It was sinful. But now that she is your wife, you need to take care of her. You need to continue this in righteousness. We understand this. So what happens then if you have entered into a marriage and you shouldn't have? You shouldn't have. You should, you, you should have never divorced unlawfully and remarried, but you did. What should you not do? Well, you should not divorce again thinking that that somehow is repentance because now you would be committing further sin. But here's the big argument. And to me, this is probably the most popular argument if you ever hear anybody teach that you have to divorce if you are in a marriage that was conceived in adultery and you have to divorce in order to repent. You're going to hear this argument. I promise yeah. you, you're, yeah. if, you, if you don't, you will sometime. You're going to yeah. hear this argument if you hear anybody teaching it. And it's the present indicative in Matthew 19.9. You may be thinking, what in the world? Who is Mr. Indicative and what is going on here? Okay. <laughs> so in the Greek language, the phrase commits adultery is in the present indicative in Matthew 19.9. Some have made the argument that based upon the Greek language, that that means, because it's in the present tense, that whoever has remarried is continuing in adultery as long as they continue in a in that subsequent remarriage after their unlawful divorce but such is not the case and 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 I am going we we on this podcast are going to get into detail with this argument because this is such a convincing argument if you know nothing about the greek language and guess how many people who are sitting in the pew listening to their preacher make this argument, know about the Greek language. Very few of them. How many know where to go to try to understand the Greek language? Very few of them. So this is vital, the information we are about to provide, to help people be freed from this really, really horrible, bad argument that, uh, that people make. And it sounds good because people really don't even know how to address it because it's a Greek argument. If you don't know Greek, you're not going to know if the argument is sound or not. So let's first deal with this. Okay, first of all, the present indicative doesn't necessitate continued action, and it can actually refer to completed action. Now, explain that a little bit for us, Lee, so that people understand what that exactly entails. So when someone argues that the present indicative, the present tense, means continuous action, why is it important for us to realize that that's not always the case? And it certainly does not necessitate that that's the case. Well, the reason why is because with a present indicative, it can indicate that something is continuous and ongoing. This is one of the biggest arguments that I used to use. And I know it's one of the arguments that you used to use. And I'll even say it does. It does a lot of the time. It does mean continuous action a lot of the time. It does, but the syntax requires and the context requires or rather indicates what type of action we're looking at. Are we looking at a continuous action that is ongoing or are we, or are we looking at an action that is terminal, something that has a terminal point? Because I can do something that has a terminal point or I can do something that I keep on doing. And the, a Greek professor by the name of Professor Osborne, he stated it this way in um 
in his article about the present indicative in Matthew 9 in the Restoration Quarterly uh, Report, he says, Greek syntax requires that each occurrence of the present indicative be understood in terms of its context to determine whether continuity or continued action is involved. The context of Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12, involves a discussion of general truth as a gnomic present in which continuity is not under consideration. So the point that he's making here is this idea that this requires it to be continuing action simply because it can be. That's not the case here. Because Jesus is discussing a gnomic present. What that means is, is this is just a general truth. This is just a general conversation about truth as it is. It doesn't require the action under consideration, which is adultery, to be a continued action over and over again. The, so, the argument that I always made is, is that, well, what this means is, is what Jesus is saying is, is that you commit adultery. That means you keep on committing adultery. And if you keep on committing adultery, because we relegate adultery and we define adultery as simply being the sex act performed with someone that is not your, your spouse or with someone else's spouse. That's what, that's how we define adultery. Even though Jesus defines adultery as the act of divorcing your spouse. So what you would say then is going back to this actual argument though, itself, the, the present indicative obviously oftentimes and certainly does and could mean continuous action, but just because something is in the present tense doesn't automatically mean that it's continued action. Exactly. That's exactly what it means. Okay. So, so now, oh, go ahead. I was going to say with that in mind, it's erroneous to assume that an action must be continual just because it's in the present indicative, because it can designate or the present indicative can designate a terminal point. It can designate a terminal action. That is an action that takes place and then it's over. It takes place. It's done. It's over. It can indicate that. So, so to assume that the present indicative means that this is a continuous ongoing action is a false assumption because it might not be. Yeah, so you're already starting with a, I won't say even a false proposition, but our, our false uh, presupposition, but at least you are overstating the case if you say that every time the present tense is used, it must be continuous action. It would be fair to say that that is an overstatement of that point. Yeah, it's an overstatement. It's a false statement at that point because that's not how that works. Yeah, Whenever could be, at, could be, and a lot of times it is, but it doesn't have to be. And so we we can we can look at this and come to it and say, okay, it could, but it doesn't have to. Now, here here's where this gets really interesting because when you look at the Greek and when you look at tenses. When you begin to try to make arguments on tense, that that already should bring up, uh, I'm not going to say a red flag, but it should cause us to wonder, are we being consistent with our arguments when it comes to the tense? And so it let me- make your ears perk up. It might not be a red flag per se, but it should make your ears perk up. You should yes. listen a little more closely and a little more critically at that point. Right. And so I actually contacted a, a couple of professors to ask them about this and the, the One of the first things that they told me is that Matthew 19.9 is dealing with something that is called case law hypothetical time. And that's now, what that gnomic present that Professor Osborne is speaking of. That gnomic present means it's a hypothetical timeline. It's a yeah, and, hypothetical situation. Yeah, well, and what that means is that we're not dealing with a narrative. We're not dealing with a story. We're dealing with a hypothetical situation. 
And this is why if you actually go through, uh, which I've done, and compare the different gospel accounts, there are different and contradictory tenses in the marital teachings of Jesus. They're not uniform. So when Jesus is talking about marriage, divorce in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's 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 contradictory tenses. <laughs> They're different in different in each one. It's not the same thing. Well, why is that the case? Well, scholar Dr. John Walton, he actually said that the reason behind this mixed bag of tenses is because hypothetical time is not a constant. So when dealing with tense and time in case law, you're dealing with variables. You're dealing with something that could happen, but may not happen. Something that hasn't happened, but might happen sometime in the future. And so you're, you're not dealing with something that is a constant. So one cannot use a tense to prove time in case law because you're not dealing with a constant. Well, and that's because a hypothetical situation and hypothetical time exists outside of our actual realistic timeline. Like if I give you, if I tell you what I did with my day to day, then that's going to necessarily follow a timeline. Some things are going to happen before, some things are going to happen after. You're going to see that in a narrative situation. But if you need to have an accounting of what I have done and what that time looks like, I'll say, well, I got up at about eight o'clock this morning because we're on vacation this week. And then I went and you know, went to the gym and exercise. And then about noon, I ate lunch and then went and bought some building materials to do a little build out on a building that we're buying. And then I went and did that build out and then had to go back to the store at about four o'clock because I'd forgot some other things. All of that follows a timeline and it's beholden the time because it happened in real life. If I'm talking about what I'm going to do tomorrow, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to go to the gym early and then I'm going to go buy some wall anchor so I can mount a cleat to the wall so I can put some rafters up for a room that I framed up today and blah, blah, blah. But if I start to say, or if we talk about a hypothetical situation, well, what if something happens? Well, I would do this, then I would do this, then I would do this. Well, then you have you know, some things that precede other things, but all of that is happening apart from a timeline. It's not beholden the time at all. Well, and I, I'll actually, if you don't mind, this may get a little too geeky for some people, but just to show we that we, we've spent the time and energy into this when I, and this has been probably five or six years ago when I was putting this together, but just to show you, um, when you see all of this in, in Matthew 5, 32a, the divorcing is present tense and the adultery committed is actually heiress tense. And in Matthew 5, 32b, the divorcing is in the perfect tense and the remarrying is in the aorist tense and the adultery is in the present. In Luke 16, 18, the first saying of Jesus has the divorcing, the remarrying, and the adultery all in the present tense. But in saying two, the divorcing is in the uh, perfect tense while the remarrying and adultery are in the present tense. And in Mark 10, 11, and 12, the divorcing and remarrying are in the perfect while the adultery is in the present. And of course, in Matthew 19, 9, the first saying has the divorcing and remarrying in the perfect and the adultery in the present. But the second saying has the divorce in the perfect, the remarrying in the aorist, and the adultery in the present. So that that's why when we talk about the consistency of the tenses, if you look at all the sayings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it's it's a mixed bag, as Dr. John Walton put it. So the divorce is seen in the present the perf and the perfect tense, okay? So we see the divorce in the present and in the perfect. 
You see, Mary's another is in the aorist, aorist tense, the present tense, and the perfect tense, and the and commits adultery is in the aorist tense and the present tense, depending upon if you're reading Matthew's account, and not just Matthew's account, but if you're reading Matthew 5, 31 and 32, versus Matthew 19, 9, versus Mark 10, versus Luke 16. So the, the point being is that you're, de- you're going to make an argument from the Greek. Be careful. <laughs> well, well, and you can't do it. You know that that's yeah. the whole point is that you're dealing with hypothetical time. But but and this is my favorite but <laughs> in this here <laughs> is that and I and I hope people are listening very carefully. Continuous action is not even the chief usage of the present indicative in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when I read this, this absolutely blew my mind. Blew my mind. Because this was the main argument that I had always used, this present tense, this Greek argument. And Mr. Clinton Hicks, he actually did a study through every single occurrence of the present indicative found in the Gospel of Matthew, because that's where the argument is made, Matthew 19.9. And the paper where his studies are documented is called The Abuse of the Present Indicative, a guide research paper presented to Professor Richard Oster, Harding Graduate School of Religion, Memphis, Tennessee, Harding Graduate School of Religion Library. And this, the stats I'm about to give you specifically is page thir- on page 33 and 34. And here were his results. Of the 719 occurrences of the present indicative, in the Gospel of Matthew, 448 are in the not-under-consideration category. In other words, uh, these examples didn't have a bearing one way or the other. That You, you couldn't say that they were one-time action, or you couldn't say that they were continuous action. They, they didn't even have any bearing, okay? 226 occurrences were in the definitely not-continuous action category, and only 45 were in the must B, continuous action category. Wow. And here's what that means. That means if you're going to use this Greek argument and say that in Matthew 19, 9, the phrase commits adultery is in the present tense, then if you are going to use that argument, the dominant usage of the present indicative in the Gospel of Matthew is used for completed action, not continual action. So if someone wanted to strictly argue from the use of the present indicative in the Gospel of Matthew, it would favor a past completed action and not an ongoing action due to its usage in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in addition to this, by the way, if one wants to reason that the adultery is an ongoing state in Matthew 19.9 simply on the basis of the present indicative, then one would also have to reason that the divorce that was obtained unlawfully is an ongoing state of sin as well, even if you remain unmarried, because it is in the present indicative in Matthew 5.32 and Luke chapter 16, verse 18. So if your position is, well, you can't remarry, you must remain unmarried, well, it's in the present indicative divorce is. So that means that as long as you remain divorced, even if you never remarry, you are in a continuous state of separating what God has joined together according to that faulty argument. But as we saw before, that's not a good argument. And furthermore, it's not even the chief usage. It is a completed action. So here's my here's my point. I do not believe that one should actually argue 
from the Greek tense. And, and I hope this is showing people how fair we are. We're not going to just quote this and go, boom, that settles the argument. That's it. And here's why. I don't think it's fair because remember, the point right before this one is that we're dealing with hypothetical time. We're dealing with case law hypothetical time. So I personally believe that the tense is frivolous. It really doesn't matter in this situation. But if it did, and for those who want to argue that it does, there's a five to one ratio reason. In other words, five times more reason to believe it should be completed action and not continued action if you want to press that Greek argument. Now, I'm just going to tell you, when you bring up these points, people are going to no longer even want to discuss the present tense. I'm just going to tell you that. They're going to drop that argument in a hurry. (laughs) Yeah, but brother, there's another argument, and this is a big problem here, because if we teach that people can remain in their new marriages, where's the consequence? People need to pay for their sins, brother Kevin. This is just an easy out for people who want to divorce and remarry. That's what it is. We're just saying you can divorce willy-nilly and just remarry whoever you want. People are going to be getting divorced right and left. You see, that's another argument that I used to make too. And (laughs) it's really not a good one because it's more of a complaint and it's more of a concern. You're not really arguing anything. You're not really proving anything except that maybe you're kind of a hard-hearted person yourself if you're demanding someone be punished, because I guarantee you, if you go through a divorce, my parents went through a divorce whenever I was 18 and, you know, being an adult, it didn't hit. I mean, it still affected me, but I see the effect it had on my mother. I see the effect it had on my father. They have both remarried. They both remarried wonderful people. I love my stepfather and I love my stepmother. They are absolutely some of the best people you will ever meet. They are just fantastic people. But even so if you don't believe that someone has not suffered consequences just through just by going through a divorce, then you just don't understand what divorce is. You just don't have a good view of what divorce is or a, or a proper understanding of that process. But we demand consequences. We demand punishment. We want to see people who err punish. And I mean that in a general sense. And it's so sad that people in the Lord's church, this is an argument that they'll make. This is an argument that I made. That if you're saying that you can remain in that marriage, well, then there are no consequences and you're just completely free of consequences. And that's just, that just won't do. That just won't do. We need to make sure people are punished. We need to hold people accountable. <laughs> and when well, we do that, we're stepping into the role of God himself. We're stepping into the role of the arbiter of justice. And that's not our place. Well, and at the core of that argument, that, that whole statement is the idea that if there is no severe consequence, then what will keep people from just divorcing and remarrying and perhaps saying a quick prayer, asking God to forgive them and then move on? We can say and, that about any sin, man. Yeah. We can say you, that about any of them. Yeah. There, there are so many sins. Um, you know, I asked the question, in fact, I was talking to a, a man one time and he, he presented that question. He said, well, Kevin, he goes, if what you're saying is true, how are we going to teach our children the importance of marriage? I said, you teach them the importance of marriage the way Jesus and Paul did it. And yeah. I, I said, how many teenagers do you teach the importance of, of remaining pure and not having sex until you're married, yet they do it anyway? They have sex out of wedlock, but nobody ever knows. There was never there was never no consequence. Now, people would say, well, there were consequences. The virginity got taken away and things of that nature. I understand, but I'm saying that there are also consequences with divorce. They may not be as, as severe as we want them to be, but how many teenagers have had sex out of wedlock, but nobody knew? 
no harm, yeah. no foul, no baby. Yeah. There was there was nothing. No uh, no diseases were passed. How many people have had secretly uh, have secretly looked up pornography? Yeah. How many people have had a hateful thought in their heart? And there was no consequence in the sense of what we demand as humans. In other words, they were able to realize what they did was wrong, ask God to forgive them, and move on. Now, does this mean we need to start coming up with scarier or more severe consequences for these sins to keep people from committing these actions? Maybe, as the church, if we say everybody who's, who's ever looked at pornography are, you know, randomly— the preacher or the elders are going to just start going into all the computers and, and grabbing them to do random history searches. Uh, is that is that going to change things? Is is it going to change? No, and the answer is no. See, we have to realize that that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees promoted. They wanted to place laws upon laws and consequence upon consequence, trying to keep people from breaking the law. And the point is, that's not dealing with the root issue, and that's the heart. That's yeah. the heart. God doesn't want people to follow him simply because of the consequence of if they don't. God wants people to follow them because they love him. And yes. God wants people to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, and it benefits us. It benefits us as humans. And when we don't do what God wants us to do, there are always consequences. When you look at pornography, there are consequences. When you have sex out of wedlock and nobody knows, there were still consequences. When when you have hateful thoughts about someone, there are consequences. So to sit here, first of all, and say there are no consequences is incorrect. Second of all, to say that having more severe consequences would change things is incorrect because you can put all the consequences you want but people are still going to do what they want to do. We need to be focusing on the heart. And if someone wants to abuse God's law and premeditate sin, God's going to hold them accountable for that. No one's going to get away from anything if they genuinely were not sorry for what they did and if they genuinely did not put their faith in Jesus. God is going to hold them accountable. We don't have to worry about that as humans. Well, and that to me, that's a that is an that's a perfect illustration of what happens whenever you begin to engage in legalism and you make your entire relationship with God. It's really not even a relationship at all. Whenever your entire output or your, what is it? What's the word I'm looking for? When the entire expression of your religion is purely transactional and you're focused on the actions that you do and the things you don't do. And you're like, well, if I do this, well, yeah, I know a trauma. If I say a prayer, God will forgive me. That's indicative of just exactly what you said. Your heart hasn't been transformed at that point. You have not been conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. You have not had your heart fundamentally reshaped and molded into what God would have it be. And, and you can change your behavior all you want. You can change the things that you do. But unless your heart is in it and unless your heart belongs to God, those behaviors mean nothing. Well, and le with legalism, you will put putting laws on people will still not change hearts. In fact, uh, Rubel Shelley he has a book, and I, I'm actually trying to look over at my bookshelf right now to so I can know what it's called. It's a divorce and remarriage a redemptive study, and he actually gives a story. And I, by the way, I highly recommend that book because it gives you some hypotheticals that I had never even heard of or thought of before. It is insane, some of the situations he found himself in. But he said that, or found himself in while he's counseling other people. And he said that there was a one couple that came in, and it was a man and a woman, and the woman was just crying and crying and crying. And he said, tell them, tell them what you did, tell them what you did. And she said, well, I had sex. I had, you know, I cheated, cheated on my husband. 
And um, he had actually paid a man to, and, and, I, and I may be getting some of these details incorrect, but the gist of this story is accurate. I don't know if he paid his man, paid this man or if it was a friend of his, but basically he made his wife have sex with another man so he could divorce her for adultery. Wow. And uh, yeah, the story is actually documented in there. And we would say, well, that's so cruel. That's so insane. But this is how legalistic this man was. He said, well, I now can technically divorce her because she has had sex with another man. And so even if you want to put all the stipulations you want, people are who have hard hearts are always going to not act in accordance with what the Bible teaches. They're always going to do what they want to do. And that's what Jesus, no pun intended, was at the heart of the, of the Sermon on the Mount was dealing with the heart. That, that's the whole point. And so simply saying that because someone made a bad decision, because someone sinned, that they can't get forgiveness from God, that they can't be redeemed and they can't move on with the future with someone else. And to say that that just doesn't seem fair. I just want to remind anyone out there listening, well, what about your sins? What sins have you quote unquote got away with? And I'm not saying got away with in a literal way, but just what, what are some of the things you've done that perhaps nobody knows about? Let's start digging through your closet and and figuring out what kind of consequences we need to start attaching to your sins. And so it's this idea of fear. People are afraid. Well, if there's not a consequence, if if we if someone truly can just ask God to forgive them and, and they can repent and move on, well then then won't that won't that won't, won't that somehow allow more people to divorce and remarry? Well, I think that the current position that so many people hold today, at least in the churches of Christ, have proven people are still going to do what they want to do, regardless yeah. of what kind of consequence that you try to put on them. So. Yeah, if your heart hasn't been transformed, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, God, really God is more, God is, is, I won't even say more concerned. He is only concerned with a transformed heart because a transformed heart is, is always going to be a transformed behavior. It's always going to be someone, you're, you're going to be, become someone different. You can have all the type of behavioral modification you want, but if your heart hasn't changed, it really doesn't matter. So, so we've those outlined, are, yeah, we've outlined these arguments for why divorce, or rather, I, I should say, why repentance does not require further divorce. It does not require you to divorce your previous spouse. Yeah, I, I don't um, believe that those arg- any of those arguments are valid. The argument of restitution, the argument that uh, as long as you continue that new marriage or continuing in sin, because we've discussed that it's not the new marriage itself that is sinful. It is the way and the adulterous way that in which it was conceived. And we talked about how something can be conceived in sin, but continued in righteousness. And then finally, this, uh, this idea of the, the present tense, obviously we, we saw that if anything that goes in favor of a one-time past completed action. And then the idea that there needs to be further consequence. Well, the Bible doesn't teach it. That's not a good argument. So I want to now leave, spend kind of the rest of this time here in this podcast giving some affirmative arguments because so far we've done more just rebuttal. We, we, we've really yeah. just gone through some of these beliefs we used to believe and we've shown why they're not accurate. But I do believe we have to prove, uh, if you will, and show why um, we changed our mind and, and why I changed my mind. Well, let me ask you, let me just kind of phrase that in the form of a question, if I can, because in all of this, 
this is all like that idea that further, you know, that remarriage and repentance requires further divorce. That was a position that I had kind of inherited. I had heard it taught on. So I just adopted that as my de facto position after I became a member of the church of Christ. And I never really studied it, never really looked at it, but there were some things that didn't make sense to me. And we've, we've enumerated those things. We've talked at length about them. You were way more entrenched within that idea than what I was. You had studied that out. You had looked at that from different angles and you ha- held on to and maintained that belief for a long time. Yeah, I had broken but, up and, relationships before through yeah, this teaching. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that in a previous episode. But you, even though you were as entrenched as what you are, you still changed your mind. Your perspective on this shifted. What was it that led up to that? Why did you change your mind? How did that come to be? Well, the more, first of all, I studied this topic, the more I realized that hardly anybody agreed with my conclusion that in order to repent of a marriage conceived in adultery, you had to divorce your current spouse. Uh, even though that that was kind of my world, I had only, I was very limited with with the materials I had chosen to study. So it was my small bubble and uh, a few other fractions and some and just a couple other churches and even even just really one or two denominations and then some fringe groups who who held this position. In other words, it wasn't very many people who held this position and even many in the churches of Christ now are no longer holding this position. And so there's really hardly anyone that I came across. There were a few folks cause I had to search them out who agreed with me, but most people disagreed and they believe that divorce is not a stipulation for repentance for people who had been uh, remarried and their new marriage was conceived in adultery. Now, I was faced with a hard fact that scholarship is pretty much in unanimous agreement that those in a marriage conceived through adultery should not cease or dissolve those new marriages. Rather, they should continue in those marriages. Now, this was a hard pill to swallow for me to realize that really there was no true scholar who agreed with me. And what made it even harder was that when I read even scholars who believe in divorce for no reason, those who are considered to be much more conservative even than I was at that point, even they didn't teach that one repents of a marriage conceived in adultery by divorcing again. Now, this did not in and of itself change my mind because there's always going to be smart people. But what this did do is it, you could say, made me more aware of just how many people disagreed with my position. Now, this is very, I want to be very careful with how I talk about scholarship because some positions and beliefs, because I don't always hold traditional views, okay? I don't always hold views that perhaps Christians have held for even hundreds of years. And the, the reason why I'm very careful with how I talk about scholarship is because some positions and beliefs they go under the radar for for hundreds of years before someone really examines it, before someone ever challenges it or, or analyzes the position. Yeah, origins and, is a good example of that. That's something yeah, there, that there, yeah, there are many in the last 50, 60, 80, 100 years that that's really been a thing. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of topics that people have just kind of accepted and they never really did much study. There was never really any debate. Everybody just kind of, nobody even really examined them. 
marriage and divorce is not <laughs> one of those teachings and beliefs. This doctrine, and, and I and I think I quoted this at the very beginning, that multiple Bible scholars, multiple Bible teachers, pastors, preachers of of generations. I mean, I'm talking even within the past hundreds of years have debated, have analyzed, have critiqued the topic of marriage, divorce, or remarriage, going all the way back from the early church to today. There has been probably no other topic that has been written about more from a biblical perspective than the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And there are a lot of positions out there. I don't think there's anything new that anybody's ever going to bring to the table on marriage, divorce, remarriage. Those positions are out there. So the fact that this has always been an issue, and people have always studied this, this is, and one of the reasons is because it's an issue that's always affected people, right? I mean, everybody has always been getting divorced. People have always married. People have always divorced. People have always remarried. So it's always been a very popular topic just because of it, how pragmatic it is. So yeah. this topic has always been under scrutiny. And yet I had to be faced with the fact that practically all scholarship was in disagreement with my conclusion when it came to the stipulations of repenting of a marriage obtained in adultery. And one source where this is discussed is in the book called Divorce and Remarriage for Christian Views. It's by J. Carl Laney, William Heth, Thomas Edgar, and Larry Richards. And as you can probably figure out based upon the title, these four scholars take four different views. And they uh, basically, yeah, they basically d debate. And I, I recommend this book because that way you get a fair hearing of at least four different views on this topic. But all make it clear throughout the book, that repentance never includes further divorce of a marriage, even if that marriage was conceived in adultery. Now, I've chosen two quotes. One is by Carl Laney. And Carl Laney, the reason I, I chose him is because he does not believe in divorce for any reason. So he is a no-exception teacher. He believes in, in no reason for divorce ever whatsoever. And yet, this is what he says. Those who have been divorced and remarried should not be considered outcasts or second-class Christians. Rather, they should be encouraged to work hard to strengthen and maintain their present marriage and to demonstrate faithfulness to their marriage partner and to God. Now, someone not in the book that I just mentioned, who is well known for believing in divorce for no reason as well, is John Piper. And this is what he has to say at the end of his study. He says, Those who are already remarried should acknowledge that the choice to remarry and the act of entering a second marriage was sin, Confess it as such and seek forgiveness. They should not attempt to return to the first partner after entering a second union. They should not separate and live single, thinking that this would better result in less sin because of their sexual relations or acts of adultery. Such is not the case. The Bible does not give prescriptions for this particular case, and it treats second marriages as having significant standing in God's eyes. That is, there were promises made and there has been a union formed. It should have not been formed, but it was. It is not to be taken lightly. Promises are to be kept, and the union is to be sanctified to God. While not the ideal state, staying in a second marriage is God's will for a couple, and their ongoing relations should not be looked upon as adulterous. Now, once again, I'm not saying I agree with all of their beliefs. In fact, I do not agree with John Piper and Carl Laney on their, their idea of the exception clause. But yeah. I picked these two men out because they are much more conservative, quote-unquote, than, than we are. And even then I was, and yet these guys are even saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. But if someone is in a, it's already remarried, you never tell them to divorce again, thinking that that's repentance. So 
I'm not saying that I agree with these men on everything. But and by the way, I could do a lot of quotes, but I wanted to do these two quotes because these are people who don't even we don't even agree on many facets of MDR. And that's something else that fascinated me, Lee, is that most people, when you talk about marriage, divorce, remarriage, disagree. It was just like the rabbis in in yeah. the time of Jesus. Man, they they disagreed on all these different facets of marriage, divorce, remarriage. There's so many different nuances that they would debate. But the one thing regardless of all this division, regardless of all this disagreement, all these different opinions, all these guys, when they come together to discuss, after they're through disagreeing, they all say, but if someone is in a remarriage, even if we believed it shouldn't have happened, they do not need to divorce. Now, I can hear someone out there saying, wait a minute, Kevin, you're telling me there's not a single Bible student out there who disagrees. No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, don't get me wrong. I know of people who believe the way I used to believe. And as I said before, I believed it for many years. I know of doctorate level educated people and self-proclaimed scholars <laughs> who teach that. But I do not know of any authentic scholar in the topic and in, in this, the field of, of marriage and divorce who spent their time studying this in the social and literary biblical context who has ever, ever come to that conclusion. I don't know of a single publication, any peer-reviewed journal of someone who is who, who is considered a scholar in that field who has ever come to that conclusion. Now, that rocked my world because believe you me, I studied a lot of those trying to find someone who did. And the more I study, that's why I know about all these guys. That's why I know about all these different <laughs> positions. I've had people in the Church of Christ that go, well, how do you know about the incestuous view? And how do you know about the betrothal view? And how do you, I said, it's because I've studied all these different things. I was trying I to find somebody who would agree with me. And the deeper I, I read, the more I saw these guys ultimately came to the conclusion that you never need to divorce again just because you think that that's repentance for something you've done in the past. So that is not an argument at all, but that is what allowed me to begin to question, hmm, if the best I can point to are my preachers that I know and myself and some of these guys that I call scholars, okay, because <laughs> the word scholar is is can sometimes be used. I've heard people say, oh, the, you know, we've sat at the feet of scholars. No, just because somebody went to preaching school does not make them a scholar, okay? Yeah. So, you know, we have to be careful with how we use the word peer-reviewed studies and, and peer-reviewed journals and scholarly publications and true scholars who have dedicated their lives to studying these, these, these topics. Because most people, may they may be good Bible students, but that doesn't mean they're a scholar in a particular field. There are many things, and me and you are going to talk about this. I have studied certain things in much more depth than I have other topics. And yeah. so I'm very careful when I, when I talk about things that I maybe haven't studied as much because I, we always need to be careful. We always need to use humility. So he, here's the question that I asked. Why? Why did all of these men, even the ones who believe in divorce for no reason at all, still come to the conclusion that if you're remarried, if you're, if you're in a marriage that you shouldn't have gotten in, but you are, that you should stay in that marriage, why did they come to that conclusion? Why did me, they not believe that you had to divorce? Let me clarify something real quick because sure. there's a phrase that you've used and I know what you mean and I think our listeners know what you mean, but I just want to make double sure that we are perfectly clear. You're saying scholars and men who have studied this that believe in divorce for no reason at all. What Kevin means 
is these men do not believe that there is any scriptural justification for divorce in any sense, period, whatsoever. He doesn't mean, Kevin does not mean that you can divorce for any reason. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that these are men that believe that you cannot divorce for any reason, even adultery, even if your you know, spouse beats you with a shovel or puts a shotgun in your mouth, you can't divorce your spouse for any reason, period. That's what Kevin means by that statement. I just want to make sure that that's perfectly clear to our listeners. Yes, yes. I'm speaking of those who believe that there is never a reason ever to divorce under any circumstances. The, and the two that I specifically mentioned were um, was uh, Carl Laney and then also John Piper. And then William Heth, he used to believe that, which he's now changed his position. And we talked about that a few episodes back. And also, you know, Zillian and I both like to try to qualify as much as possible. I, I want to be very careful because, like I said, when I use the word scholar, I, I can just see somebody going out there and they're starting to Google search. Is there anybody who believes this? Is there anybody who believes this? There are people out there, yes, who believe that. But the point that I'm making is I don't know of anyone who their field their, their level of education is, is specifically in the field of not just biblical studies, but the field of marriage and divorce in the social and literary context. And those who have spent years studying this, William Heth would have been probably at the forefront of, at one time, the no exception view, and he ended up changing, and he even, even he came to that conclusion, John Piper and some of these other guys. And so I, I don't want anybody to take offense if you've got a PhD out there because that means you've got a lot more education formally than I have. And just because, and by the way, I don't consider myself a scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. I've, I, I don't know how many hundreds of hours I've spent studying this topic, but I do not consider myself a scholar on this topic. So that, so I do not mean to demean anybody out there. If you say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a scholar and I've got a PhD or, you know, a doctor's degree in, in Bible. And that, that makes me a scholar. No, no, that doesn't make you a scholar in that particular field. And so uh, of, of particularly specifically marriage and divorce. So we just have to be careful of how we are using terms. And when we're discussing peer reviewed journals and papers and things like that. So anyway, good. Thank you for, for, for clarifying that so that people at home who are listening can can understand the point, but he, here is why all these men ended up coming to this conclusion, both men and women, ultimately is because of this. There is no evidence that repentance ever included divorce in the case of a remarriage. And as stated earlier, you can't refute a negative. I don't have to prove that repentance from a marriage conceived in adultery does not include divorce if there is no reason to believe that it does. And this is nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. There, 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 this is taught nowhere where someone is told they must divorce their current spouse in order to repent of their marriage simply because it was conceived in adultery or because it was a marriage that took place after an unlawful divorce. The only times, and we discussed this, I believe, in our second episode, that we see someone uh, being told to divorce was we see for adultery, we see for neglect, we see for intermarriages in Ezra 10, and then also incestuous marriages, possibly in uh, the account of uh, Herod and Herodias and when John rebuked them, which that in and of itself we went into great lengths to discuss. But never do you ever see someone who was in a marriage after a divorce, unlawful divorce, being told that now they have to divorce again because that's a marriage they shouldn't have been in because they have been unlawfully divorced. You never see that. Now, it's it's not enough to say that that's not there. 
here's how here's what else we can say. The only time this is addressed, because it is addressed, is in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And it states that you are not to return to your first spouse once you have been remarried, even if the new spouse dies. Now, somebody may say, well, wait a minute, that was Jewish law. Okay, well, show me in the Old or New Testament where anyone was ever told to do that. Because the only time we see this happen, specifically, not a, not just a parallel, but the specific case that we're discussing is when it is said, do not go back to that first spouse. And so, even then, you're not commanded to divorce your current spouse. No, no. And and there's no passage in the Old Testament or New Testament that instructs one to divorce if they are in a marriage after an unlawful divorce. So there's never any evidence of this taking place. In fact, this left me with a lot of unanswerable questions. If, if my belief was correct, okay, if I believe that those who had been remarried after an unlawful divorce now had to divorce again, then there was a lot of practical questions that I just couldn't answer. Number one, did everybody, Lee, who was remarried begin divorcing as a means of repentance as soon as Jesus began to teach on marriage and divorce? <laughs> you would think that that would be the case if that were the case. And with all of the documentation and the artifacts and the things that have been discovered in Judea, in the ancient Near East, there have been divorce certificates found. There have been marriage contracts that have been found. You would think that that would be the case. You would think that you would find that evidence if that's what that meant. But the evidence isn't there. It's not there anthropologically, and it's not there scripturally either. Yeah, so that was one question that that was hard for me to, to, to look at. Another question was, did every single person who had been remarried before Jesus, who was still living, all of the sudden have to divorce. So think about this. Let's say that you, because at that time, you know, Hillel, that was the popular school of thought where you could divorce for any reason. So most people, and Instone Brewer points out, historically speaking, most people who were divorced were divorced for just any reason and remarried. So are you telling me now that, let's say, 40, 30 years, 20 years before Jesus came on the scene, this person, uh, a couple had divorced and remarried, and they'd been married for 30 years. And now Jesus begins teaching this. Now, do they have to divorce at that point in time? Or could people continue in their new marriage as long as they contracted it before Jesus taught <laughs> on marriage and divorce? See, these are questions people don't really think of because this is yeah. this is the reality of the situation. That's the problem of looking at, at the Bible like this, this dead book. This yeah. this law coded book. These are legit questions that people that 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 we would need to answer if we believe that. And by the way, if this specific teaching on repentance is true, then when did it become effective? Immediately when Jesus taught, because in in Hebrews nine the Bible says that the death of a testator has to first occur in order for the testament to go into effect. So if Jesus did not die and the early church was not started until Acts two. 50 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, then when did this teaching begin to be effective? Was it after Jesus died? Was it when Jesus immediately taught it? Was it Acts 2 when the church was established? Can you imagine the chaos and confusion this would have caused? I mean, think about the conversations. Hey, uh, when did you get your when did you get remarried? Oh, I got remarried before Jesus began teaching. <laughs> So I'm safe. I'm safe. What about you? No, I got remarried three weeks after Jesus taught, so now I had to divorce in order to repent. <laughs> you, you begin to look at this and make it real. 
And you Dude, ask, you know, go ahead. It's, it's insane. I mean, and what's hilarious is that, you know, I've thought about a lot of these things, but these are questions that have never crossed my mind. Even when entrenched in legalism, even whenever I held to that previous belief, it, just this idea, just these conversations in my mind, I'm a real visual person and I can kind of see it almost like a cutaway scene and a, a comedy show or something. These people having these conversations, but dude, that's the only conclusion you can come to if this is the case. Yeah. And, and, and why is this not there? Why do we never see any evidence of this taking place? Clearly an instone brew brought this up as, uh, as, as so did many others who I've read and studied there would have been so much evidence and so much written about this because this would have caused utter chaos. Even if people wouldn't have done it, if this is what they believe Jesus would have been teaching, this would have been utter, absolute chaos. And the fact that there's not any bit of this mentioned, Jesus doesn't address it, Paul doesn't address it, no Jews address it, no Romans address it, and yet we say that this life-changing decision for everyone who is hearing Jesus, now this means something completely different, and yet we don't read a, a bit of information. We don't read a, any evidence of this taking place. And so it gets even more interesting, though. We're not we're not done yet. You know, Hopefully our, our crowd will stay with us here because we're really just now starting to get to the good stuff. So what I decided is to check out other sources because these are just a handful of questions that made this position very difficult for me to hold. If I really believed that divorce was a stipulation for repentance for those who had been remarried, all of the aforementioned questions made that position very difficult for me to hold because I saw that I, I'm really lacking. I'm really lacking. There's, there's, I don't have scholars on my side. I don't have history on my side. I don't have evidence on my side. You it's really got the Bible on your side, man. Yeah, no, but you know, so while the Bible's our authority, I thought I would take a look at outside sources during that time period to see if there was any evidence outside the Bible that maybe could help. And here's what I found that there is no external evidence where everyone, where anybody, Anybody, not one single piece of evidence, not a shred of evidence was where anyone was ever told to get out of their new marriage in order to repent, nor of any stories where someone was or did get out of their new, new marriage in order to repent. This is absent from any Jewish writings, Roman writings, and even anta antagonistic writings. And people say, well, wait a minute, what are antagonistic writings? Well, during the time Christianity was growing, there were a lot of people who didn't like Christianity. Yeah. So just like today, they begin to make accusations that may not absolutely be true, but they're based on something that is true. For example, we know that there were antagonistic writings against Christians because we see this being defended. Uh, our, our Christians are actually refuting these because they talk about how certain people are making these accusations against them. For example, one accusation is that Christians were cannibals because of a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. they Those on the outside of Christianity heard about these Christians eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and so they assumed they were cannibals. Obviously, that was wrong, but we understand why they would believe it, because of the yeah. Lord's Supper. Um, Christians were also accused of being incestuous because of a misunderstanding that they were being married to their brothers and sisters, since they called one another brothers and sisters in Christ. Once again, we know they weren't incestuous, but we understand why some on the outside would have heard that and used that against them. Christians even were sometimes accused of being atheists because they denied the Roman gods. So 
Christianity was not in a bubble, okay? People were writing. Yeah. People who didn't like Christianity was writing. If Christianity at that time was were teaching people that if you were in a marriage after divorce and now you have to divorce again, that would be my go-to argument if I was not a Christian to show how ridiculous Christianity is. And yet, we do not have one writing about anybody divorcing or leaving their marriage in order to repent or follow Jesus. So that in and of itself, due to the cultural and societal circumstances, certainly there would be something, right? Something written about this if the Christian movement was either causing divorces or if they were at least even teaching others that they had to divorce in order to repent. Yet there is zero, zip, nada, no evidence of this happening even one time. Now, I want to kind of turn this to you because I know I've been talking a lot here. A, a, a point that sometimes people bring up is the early church fathers. And yeah. I had always been taught that the early church fathers were very strict on marriage and divorce. By the way, they are. And I have done an in-depth paper detailing just how strict they were. So I thought I would do some digging there. And uh, Lee, Lee, talk about the early church a little bit for us and what their conclusion was when it came to repentance, especially of a marriage that they believe someone should have not entered into. Well, I haven't read as much of the early church fathers or the history of the early church as much as what you have. But one thing that's clear and that everybody who has even studied this in a, in a cursory way understands that the early church had really harsh views on marriage. I mean, some of these were ascetically influenced. You know, we talked about um, asceticism or asceticism, however you want to say it, tomato, tomato, capillary, capillary. You know, we talked a little bit about that last time, but you know, this idea about um, asceticism is that you couldn't seek out any pleasure whatsoever. Like procreation, the act of sexual intercourse wasn't to be done for pleasure. It was done purely to be fruitful and multiply. And these views influenced these, these ideologies, influenced their view of marriage, divorce, but there's not any evidence whatsoever that teaches that the early church fathers believed that you had to divorce your new spouse in a remarriage in order to repent. Now, there are people that say, well, that's an argument from silence. But the problem is, is that it's not silence because the early church fathers did deal with some of these circumstances. And that's an important point to note. I mean, you can't make an argument from silence, even though a lot of us within the churches of Christ do that with other topics. But we're not going to talk about that right now. They didn't argue from silence because they did argue some of these cases, and that can't be stated enough. They specifically addressed those situations, and repentance never required dissolving any new marriage. And to the contrary, it required various forms of penance. I mean, they some of them said that you needed to fast for a period of time or that you needed to mourn and confess for a period of time. And you should engage in certain activities like communion or restrict periods of time in certain practices. Um, like dress in sackcloth and ashes or to do so indefinitely. And you can read that in the canons of the apostles and the canons of Basil and the Synod of Elvia, et cetera. There, there's a lot there. But there's, there's one quote here. There's one quote here who is from uh, Gregory Thaumaturgus. And he said at a very early period, the exomologis, which is the, the act of public confession, was divided into four parts or stations. In other words, if you had entered into a remarriage, if you had divorced and remarried, this is how you repented of that. This is what it looked like way back yonder in the early church era. It was a public 
act of confession. The penitents were grouped in as many different classes according to their progress in penance. The lower class, the flinties, or those weeping, remained outside the church door and besought the intercession of the faithful as these passed into the church. The audientes, the hearers, were stationed in the narthex of the church behind the catechumens and were permitted to remain during the mass of the catechumens, that is, until the end of the sermon. The substrati, the prostrate, or genuflectines, the kneelings, those who kneel, that's what genuflecting is, occupied the space between the door and the ambo where they received the imposition of the bishop's hands or his blessing. Finally, the consistentes were so called because they were allowed to hear the whole mass without communicating or because they remained at their place while the faithful approached the holy table. This grouping in the stations originated in the East, where at least the three higher groups are mentioned about AD 263 by Gregory Thaumaturgus and the first or lowest group by St. Basil. In the West, the classification did not exist, or at any rate, the different stations were not so clearly marked. The penitents were treated pretty much as the catechumens. So what you see then is, is you see a division between those who would become part of the Eastern Orthodox Church and those who were who were part of what developed into the Roman Catholic Church. That's what it means by the East and the West. The point is, is that repentance required a lot of stuff. There are a lot of things that they needed to do in order to express their repentance. There are proof positive writings that give specific prescriptions of what penance was and how to repent of unlawfully divorcing and remarrying. In all of that, There is not a single writing, there is not a single example, there is not a shred or iota of any evidence that dissolving the new marriage was required in order to repent. To argue that in order to repent of a marriage conceived in adultery that you must divorce is to make an argument that has no evidence to back it up. And to me, that's the strongest point that you can make. I mean, you look at the scriptures and what the scriptures teach because we say we're Bible people. We call Bible things by Bible names. We do Bible things in Bible ways. And when we talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we say in order to repent, if you are married, you must divorce your new spouse in order to be right in the sight of God. And if you start in Genesis 1 and you go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, you will find not one single example of that ever happening. You won't find a single command that that must take place. The only way you can arrive at that conclusion is to make an inference that that's the case from Matthew 19, 9, as it relates. And we talked about that in gory detail for the first 45 minutes of this episode. Well, and if, and if that was an inference that we make, it was an inference that Jesus didn't make, Paul didn't make, and not a single individual in the, the, the Jews are a Greco Roman world made are the early church made. So and the antagonists, the people that hated Christians, you don't see any evidence in the Bible. You don't see any evidence from the Jews, from the Jewish writings and their commentary on the scriptures or in their cultural commentary, because they wrote some antagonistic stuff against the Christians. You don't see any evidence from Greco-Roman writings. You don't see any evidence from Christian antagonists. You don't see any evidence from the early church fathers. But people well, still a- say, well, that's an argument from silence. People still say that, though. Well, and and the problem with that is, is, as you pointed out, it's not just an argument from silence, uh, because we actually see the early church specifically addressing what to do in order to 
repent, which included various forms of penance, as you brought out, whether it was uh, not being able to take the Lord's Supper, perhaps for your whole life or, or for a certain duration or uh, having to sit at a certain place at church services or whether it, it had to do with uh, certain periods of mourning or confession. There were all sorts of different requirements and stipulations, which, by the way, I believe a lot of what they injected was uh, not even biblical. But even even aside from that point, they never, ever, ever, ever told anyone to to dismiss or dissolve their their new marriage. In fact, it continued on, and they knew it continued on. That wasn't even a debate. That wasn't even a topic. And this is interesting. There is a, a book called From Reliable Sources, An Introduction to Historical Methods by Martha Howell, and they talk about how to understand history and how to make arguments. And it said that an argument from silence may apply to a document only if the author was expected to have the information, was intended to give a complete account of the situation, or if the item or information was important enough and interesting enough to deserve to be mentioned at the time and within the same context of the other writings. Now, here's what's interesting if you take that to be true, which I do, and I think most people concerned with establishing history take into consideration, and they believe that that's accurate. So given the fact of how many Christian references and sources we do have about marriage and divorce, because it's not like we don't have that many. A good part of the gospel accounts (laughs) are about marriage and divorce. Paul dedicates a whole chapter on marriage and divorce. We have a lot of early church fathers talking about marriage and divorce. This We have a lot of rabbis in the first century talking about marriage and divorce. We have a lot of information on marriage and divorce, specifically how it pertained to Jesus and, and Christianity and, and, and the Bible in general. Yet not one of them mentions divorce as a stipulation for repentance, for repentance for marriages conceived in adultery. And this becomes very powerful because in order to dismiss this argument, you would have to admit that repentance for a marriage conceived in adultery was not important are interesting enough to deserve to be mentioned in the New Testament. So and we just spent the last 12 hours talking about it because it is mentioned in the New so, Testament. So you would have to you, so you would have to say that whatever repentance demands is not important. So you you would have to say well repentance for a marriage conceived in adultery just wasn't important. Pa- Paul wasn't he wasn't concerned about how to move on with your life. Jesus wasn't concerned. The early church fathers weren't concerned. Of course they were. And furthermore, as I said before, consider that Paul spent a whole chapter dealing with questions, questions, by the way, on marriage and divorce, and he even takes the time to justify virgins being able to marry, yet he never has to justify people being able to continue in their new marriage. Think about how powerful that point is. A question about a virgin being able to remarry, Paul answered, but he never even addresses the fact of someone being married and if they have to divorce in order to repent. Why? Because that was not even on the radar. That that was not ever even in the minds of Paul or Jesus or any other of the individuals that this information was originally written to. And in Stone Brewer, William Luck and others make the point that if Jesus and Paul were meaning to teach that now in order to repent of a marriage, obtain an adultery, you had to divorce— then both Jesus and Paul would have had to be explicit and specific in saying so due to the cultural context and understanding at the time. So to acknowledge that the Bible spends a significant amount of time dealing with marriage and divorce, and it does, and to admit that divorce was very common 
And it was. was. Yeah. And to admit that there is no evidence that divorce was included in repentance for a marriage obtained in adultery, both contextually and intrinsically proved the point in and of itself that divorce could not be understood to be included in repentance from a marriage conceived in adultery. And so once again, this argument from silence ended up having a voice when it is confirmed by the early church, when they specifically speak about situations involving people who are remarried. So the early church specifically mentioned situations where people were remarried when they believe they shouldn't have been, yet when specifically addressing the issue, they never included divorce as part of repentance. They assume the marriage will and should continue. Thus, this is no longer an argument just from silence of evidence, but also an argument from the present of evidence that lets us know how the early church did handle those who were in a marriage obtained through adultery. And that is, it's so powerful when you think about it in those terms, it's so powerful. And for a long time, and and we really, we've gone way longer than we both anticipated we would on this, but that seems to be our habit because we, (laughs) but we've talked a lot about what the Bible doesn't say. Can I make a really sexist comment? <laughs> Whenever you preface it like that, I'm curious if I want to hear what it is. Go, what you got? I'm already throwing myself on the altar here. Okay. You know, it's kind of like when um for whatever reason, women sometimes every time if they know like uh they have they're going somewhere, but for for whatever reason, it always took them longer than they thought it was going to take them. You would think that they would learn after a period of time just to give themselves more time or to change how they're getting ready. Right. (laughs) It's kind of, it's kind of, that's kind of how I feel like with being you as people are out there thinking, well, okay, every time I listen to Kevin and Lee, they always say they've gone longer than anticipated. You would think by now, three months into this podcast, Kevin and Lee would would have figured this thing out, but you know what? Just like women, men are also human too. So yeah, yeah. part of it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're, we, we may be smart in some <laughs> ways, but we're not that quick in others. And this proves that point. But, you know, we talked. <laughs> oh, man. You know, we've talked about what the Bible doesn't say. And you really can't base an argument on what the Bible doesn't say, even though that's what the idea of requiring divorce after remarriage does. It's an argument based on what the Bible doesn't say. What does the Bible say, though? The Bible tells married people to stay married, period. The Bible tells married people to stay married. Marriage is intended to be for life. It's not always going to work out that way, but that's the intention. But we don't ever read of Jesus or Paul telling married people to divorce. We never see them telling married people, or rather we see them telling married people to remain married. We never see them telling people to divorce. We see them telling people to stay married. And that conclusion that I held to, that conclusion that you held to, that's the opposite of what the scriptures teach. We're teaching the opposite of what the Bible declares. We're demanding, or we were rather, demanding divorce in subsequent marriages when the Bible states that you need to stay married. I'm t- I'm preaching from the pulpit and telling married people to divorce. You're going to people in private and when they're seeking counsel, what should we do? You're telling them to divorce. When the Bible tells them you need to stay married. And one of the things that David and Stone Brewer pointed out in his book, due to the cultural and societal context of his time, is that Jesus and Paul would have had to explicitly and undeniably be clear. 
if they wanted to teach that divorced people could not marry and remain and remarried people had to divorce in order to repent. But they didn't teach that. They didn't only not teach that. They taught that divorced people could marry and that married persons should stay married, period. Yeah. And when you look, when I realized that I was teaching unmarried people that they couldn't marry and I was teaching married people that they couldn't be in their marriage, as you pointed out, I was saying the exact opposite. Because what I should have been telling is if unmarried, if people are unmarried and uh, they, they tried to reconcile or if reconciliation was not available anymore, then they need to realize if they divorced unlawfully, they shouldn't have and that it was a sin, and they needed to ask God for to forgive them, but they could remarry. That's what Paul teaches. I wasn't teaching that. I was teaching them they couldn't marry, and yet Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, that that's a doctrine of demons. To, to forbid marriage is a doctrine of demons. And by the way, people didn't see it as remarriage. They saw it as marriage and marriage and marriage. We, we, we say today, you know, divorce and remarriage and the the truth of the matter is a marriage was a marriage. They they didn't say, well, you've yeah. been remarried. They just you you married. Uh okay. Yeah. So they would have understood that if you were divorced, then if you were unmarried, you had a right to marry. And to forbid somebody that right was a doctrine of demons. The only time it's wrong to forbid somebody a remarriage is if they're married to somebody else and they divorce unlawfully in order to marry somebody. That's the only time it's wrong to remarry, and that's the only time it's wrong to to marry someone who was divorced because you would be a complicit party. But even in that situation, you can repent. And if you repent, you are now in a new marriage. And if you are in a new marriage, Paul tells you to what? To remain married. He does not tell anybody to divorce in order to repent. And for people to say, well, that's common sense. No, it would have not been common sense. It's not common sense today, and it certainly wasn't common sense back then. As you pointed out, Paul would have had to make that extremely clear. Jesus would have had to make that extremely clear if they were teaching something different. What they were basically saying is the practice that you guys have been doing is going to continue, but it's not right. But that doesn't mean that if you continue committing it, you can't finally realize what you did was wrong and ask God to forgive you and continue on in that new relationship, just as Joshua and the Gibeonites did, just as David and Bathsheba did, just as many people who have sex out of wedlock end up making a child, continue in that parent-child relationship, just as someone who marries when they shouldn't have. And even what I find interestingly is Wayne Jackson in his article about marrying a a Christian, marrying a non-Christian, he says that that sin, which I know you and I disagree on that, but I I do believe it's it's a sin for a believer to marry a non-believer, And even he says, if they do that, they need to repent of the disposition that allowed them in that situation to begin with. So even he realizes in that situation. So it's interesting Now he's inconsistent because he would turn around and teach that if someone is in a marriage that was conceived through adultery, you have to divorce. But if you sin by remarrying a a non-Christian, then you can continue married to them. That's highly inconsistent. And, and, and it, we've seen all these different examples that Paul teaches married people to stay married, not just if you're in your first marriage, not if you're just in a quote-unquote scriptural marriage, but if you are married, then you are to stay married. You are to remain unmarried. Now, I want to interject this real quick. We're not going to get into the topic of homosexuality one way or the other, but I do want to inject this point. Paul, people all the time say, well, Kevin, does that mean then if someone's in a homosexual marriage that you believe we could use Paul? No, and here's why. There was no such thing as homosexual marriage at that point. Now, I'm not going to get into all the different facets of homosexual marriage, but 
back then that was not on Paul's radar. It did not exist in, in any culture at that time, much less the, the Greco Roman slash Jewish culture during that time. So we have, that's why we have to look at things in context at that point in time, no telling how many people would have already been remarried after something that Jesus called an unlawful divorce. And yet Paul tells people at Corinth, the epicenter of immor- of, of immorality that they are to stay married. You can't tell me that Jesus and Paul didn't think that somebody would get the hold of that letter in the first century who had been remarried and read that. <laughs> they yeah. knew, and, and in fact, more than likely, I don't know this, but more than likely, there were probably people who were divorced at Corinth, but if they weren't, that letter was being passed around to people who were, and if they read that and it says, if you're married, stay married, there was no contextual qualifier, not only not only specifically, but even contextually. There's no reason to believe that someone would have read that. Oh, well, I've been remarried, so I guess Paul's not talking about me. No, if you were married, you were married, regardless of which marriage it was. It was. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's what the Bible teaches, pure, plain, and simple. Well, is anything really simple? Whenever it comes yeah, to our pure, our plain. Yeah. <laughs> You're plain and simple. Yeah. It's taken us 20 hours to show how plain the teaching is. How plain it is. Yeah. Well, and it's just so funny to me because that's still a part of my parlance that's that's dying hard. It's hard to, to retrain some of those phrases that you use. But what the Bible does teach is that married people should stay married. Repentance is a cessation of sin. It looks forward to the future. It is representative of a transformed heart and a transformed life in which that person's life is changed. That person's outlook is changed. The person's value system is changed and their actions will reflect that change. Repentance is a, sense- is a cessation of sin. It's not a continuance in sin. And that means ne- that necessitates that further divorce is not a part of repentance. The, vow that has taken, the covenant that's taken should be honored. Just like Joshua and the Gibeonites, just like David and Bathsheba, someone was not continuing in sin by continuing in the new covenant that they made. They would have committed sin by breaking those covenants that they had made. You repent by confessing your sin. You realize you shouldn't have done it. And then you move forward with a renewed mind. And just like you stated so beautifully and eloquently, my Alabama wild man, any marriage that's conceived in adultery, it should not have happened, but it did. Just like a child conceived out of wedlock, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. Just like David and Bathsheba, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. David didn't repent by divorcing Bathsheba. He repented by keeping his covenant with her and not sinning again. And when a marriage has been conceived through adultery, you don't repent of it by breaking up another marriage. You repent by confessing your sin and committing to that new marriage by not breaking up another marriage. To break up a subsequent marriage is to perpetuate sin and to repeat that pattern. You can conceive a marriage in sin, as you stated, and continue it in righteousness. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we've spent the last countless hours, the last how many hours, <laughs> enumerating and discussing. And well, with that, I think we've covered just about everything. Yeah, and, and obviously there's a lot more side points we could bring up. Um, one thing that I, I didn't actually even jot down, but something that was pretty influential on my understanding is 
when Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for for man and man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the principle that Jesus is teaching there because what he's saying is is that they were taking the law and they were applying the law in a way that actually contradicted the purpose of the law. So yeah. the the purpose of the Sabbath law was not given to condemn someone if they chose to help someone on the Sabbath. The purpose of the law was given so that they would have a day of rest, right? So the way in which we apply God's commands cannot contradict the purpose in which they were originally given. So when I think about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, when Jesus is teaching and Paul is teaching, I don't know of anybody who would disagree with the fact that Jesus is trying to stop hard-hearted, unlawful divorce. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. Well, with my former teaching, if repentance, if it was true that repentance demands further divorce, then Jesus' teaching would actually be causing far more divorces than it would be marriages. In other words, instead of people being true to their covenants that they made, even if they shouldn't have made them later in life, instead of people continuing in their current marriages, Jesus would have needed to say, "You, most of you are in a marriage you uh, after a divorce, and you now have to divorce again in order to repent. Jesus' focus wouldn't be on keeping your marriage vows. His focus would have been on the importance of how most Jews and those in the Greco-Roman world who convert to Christianity are going to have to divorce in order to follow him. I mean, the, the new five-step plan of salvation in the churches of Christ would have been here, believe, repent, confess, uh, or here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, um, divorce your spouse, remain single, and live faithful the rest of your life. That That's what the plan of salvation would have had to be because of the culture at that time of how many people were remarried who were listening to Jesus and who would have ended up being converted to Christianity on, on either side, either century of Jesus in the both Jewish and Greco-Roman world. So here's what I discovered, and here's what I concluded. If it's true that the way we apply uh, the command of God, any command, any teaching of Christ, cannot contradict the original meaning or intent of why it was given, then if Jesus' teaching was given to stop divorce, we certainly could not apply it in a way that would cause further divorce. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just spot on. It, it doesn't make any sense to declare that Jesus in his goal of trying to stop divorce necessitates further divorce in order to make God happy. And that's one of the things that, that I asked, you know, a friend of mine a while back when we were discussing this idea, you know, you're saying that you need to divorce your spouse, but God hates divorce. And so you're saying that you need to do more of what God hates because divorcing for no cause, which I guess you would, you would call this a, a holy cause or whatever, <laughs> but but you're you're essentially in entering into and engaging in another no cause divorce or another no fault divorce or you know however the Hillelites put it, and you're essentially saying that you need to do more of what God hates to make God happy. That makes no sense whatsoever. And whenever we look at what the scriptures teach, we see that they don't teach further divorce is necessary. We see that repentance for marriage divorce and remarriage, or repentance rather for unlawful divorce and then subsequent remarriage. What repentance looks like is the same thing that it looks like for every other sin, for every other process of sin, for every other sinful activity that's out there. 
It's an acknowledgement of that sin. It's a renewing of one's mind, and it's a resolution to continue onward with the help of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit to not do those things again and to be transformed so that the pattern doesn't repeat, that the cycle is broken that led to that sinful activity in the first place. That's what repentance is for everything. And that's what repentance is for divorcing and unlawful divorce and for remarriage. Well, and that's the question. Is Jesus concerned with punishing everyone and putting them in a state of celibacy? Or is he more more concerned with keeping covenants that you, you have made, your current covenants, and changing your life and being redeemed and continuing on in a relationship with him? What, what is he more concerned with? And a lot of this is going to really depend on how you view God. I, I was actually talking to someone earlier today, and they had shared with me a lesson about obedience and grace. It didn't have anything to do with marriage and divorce, but it was just a sermon that they had shared with me to get my thoughts on it. And And I told her, I said, with no disrespect to the speaker, I said, he and I see God and the Bible so differently. I can't even begin to go into detail as to all the reasons why I don't agree with him. And I said, because the fundamental thing is he sees, he made the comment that the only thing grace does is gives us an opportunity to repent so we can be right with God. Yeah. And I, and I told yeah, and I told this individual, I said, you know, if that's the way you, if that's the way this person views God, I said it's going to be very difficult for me to have a conversation with them. Uh, not because I doubt his insincerity or his sincerity or his his intentions or anything like that, because that's exactly the type of stuff I used to teach. But because I now view God in such a different way than he, than he does, and so. Most people would say, well, if that's what Jesus demands, that's what Jesus demands. And I'm like, well, I, I agree with that, but I, I don't see him ever demanding that. And there's no evidence he demanded that. Nobody in the early church believed he demanded that. And furthermore, that is putting, just like the Jews are putting the Sabbath over the people and misapplying it, people are putting marriage over the people within marriage. And so they're they're misapplying it and they're punishing people, thinking that that's what God wants instead of seeing that what God wants is for people to be to live redeemed lives in whatever situation yeah. that you know regardless of of if you made a mistake if you have a, if you had a child out of wedlock if you entered into a marriage through 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 adultery whatever what we can come to is realize that you can repent you can confess to god which that's what repentance is because people say well what do you do to repent what you do with anything ask god yeah. to forgive you realize what you did was wrong and and seek to no longer commit that same action, which would be in this case unlawfully divorcing again. And you know there there are so many of these these ideas and these topics that are kind of moot points. You know we're going to get into origins in the next few weeks. We're going to discuss that because that was a big thing for me. It almost the, the the question of origins, the age of the universe, and all that almost shipwrecked my faith. I almost left the church over that almost left faith entirely and left Jesus and God and everything behind over origins. And we'll talk about that. That's a real interesting story. And to our listeners, we, we hope you'll enjoy that, that series. It won't be as long as what this one has been, but it'll be a good one. But that's one of those points in which it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It really doesn't affect people's lives one way or another. It doesn't matter until it does for the individual. But marriage, divorce, and remarriage is different. It is one of those things that depending on the position that you hold, whether you hold the scriptural position, and I believe that you and I have elucidated that scriptural position in way more detail than what most people would would probably expect. 
what we have stated in these last, you know, seven episodes of this podcast, I believe, and Kevin believes that this is what the Bible teaches. This is truth. This is the truth that God has revealed. And there are a lot of things that really, eh, whatever, like with origins, whatever, we'll get into that when we get into it. But marriage, divorce, and remarriage is different because it affects the lives of so many people. It can be, depending on the position you take, it can be an incredibly destructive doctrine. It can tear people's lives apart. It can cause uncount. It can cause countless or innumerable harm, immeasurable harm. If it's demanded that you stay in a marriage because you can't divorce and he's beating you up all the time, or your spouse is telling you that you're no good, that you're a terrible person, that if if you're a husband and you know you're telling your spouse that unless you do exactly what I say, you're not obeying your husband is in the Lord and you're just being you know you're just being a bad wife and you're going to go to hell for that. That's abuse. And to tell someone to stay in that, it's going to tear down their psyche. It causes destruction. And like you said, it puts marriage above the people that are in the marriage. And that's the reason why we decided to lead off our podcast with a few episodes to kind of get our footing and then dive deep into this is because it's so important. It is so important that this gets out there because there are people that need to be free. There are people that need to understand and to know what the Bible teaches and that these positions that have been espoused from pulpits over so many years, it's just flat wrong. It's false doctrine. And I don't say that lightly. The people that that say these things, you know, your friends, you still love them. You still care about them. You still respect them, but you strongly and vehemently disagree with what they say, Kevin. These are preachers that I respect. These are preachers that I know that I love. And whenever they preach these things, it really aggravates me. It really upsets me. It almost makes me angry after having studied this because it's false doctrine. It's destructive. It's harmful. And the goal with this is hopefully this can be a first step to try to undo some of that damage. This can be a first step to reorient ourselves and those within the church and specifically those within the churches of Christ towards what the Bible teaches on this topic, that we can have better churches, better homes, better marriages, and that we won't cower in fear anymore. We won't stay in situations that we don't have any business being in as spouses, that we won't stay in an abusive relationship, that we won't stay in a neglectful relationship, that we won't you know, bear guilt or the weight of guilt on our own minds that we have remarried and somehow that's sinful in God's eyes. No, the goal is restoration. God desires our hearts. He desires our love. He desires our adoration. And you can have all of those things and remain married as you are. Well, I think of David and Bathsheba and not just the fact that he ultimately had Uriah killed, but how faithful Uriah was to him and just the regret he must have had with, with what he did. I mean, we saw David hurt and he realized that he shouldn't have done what he did and, and he regretted it. And there were things that he wished he would have changed. And, you know, no matter what your situation is, if if David can be called a man after God's own heart, and he is talked about in the quote unquote Hall of Faith in in the the New Testament, and we see David being praised, and yet this man was able to not only remarry, be rebuked because of it. Um, once again, the 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 fact was not that he just 
was wrong because of murdering and because of the adultery, but the way in which he obtained the marriage is what he was also being rebuked for. The Bible says it displeased God when he, how he took Uriah, uh, I'm sorry, not Uriah, but how he took Bathsheba and how he was able to repent. And he, and God even blessed them with a, with a child in the future of Solomon, which by the way means peace. And so it's interesting when you take all those things into consideration that that's the God we serve. And to think that somehow now all that's just been reversed, all that's just been switched, it, it just teaches such a warped, warped, warped view of God, of Jesus. Uh, I've known people who've left Christianity altogether because of this false doctrine on marriage, divorce, and remarriage that states that, um, you know, if your spouse is, is beating you up, you, you have to stay with them, even if it's, you know, even if he never changes. You have to stay with them. That's just what the Bible teaches. And... They end up just leaving Christianity altogether because if that's the kind of God that Christianity promotes, then honestly, I would I would not want a part of that God. I'll go if that's blasphemy, it's blasphemy. But I would not want a part of that God. That that's yeah. not that's not Jesus. There's nothing about that at all that is 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 Christocentric at all. And well, so, it, well, like and I, I said, it's dangerous. Well, and I think about my own kids, you know, we've got four of them and I think about my girls, especially And you know, boys and men can be abused in relationships as well. It's way more prevalent than what people think, but I think about my girls and I think if they were to be in a relationship with a dude who beat them up with a dude who, you know, just, you know, denigrated them all the time, who ran them down, who was verbally and spiritually and emotionally abusive someone who just treated them like garbage as their father. Do I want that for them? Do I want them to remain in that? Not at all. Would I want them to have a way out? Yeah, absolutely. And wouldn't you know it, God, our heavenly father has given us that same way out. He has given his people that same way out because he recognizes that not everyone is going to conform themselves to the image of Jesus. Even those people who call themselves Christians, People who show up to church every Sunday, people who take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, they may even be able to get up and lead a song. They may be able to get up and lead a sermon. They may be the most despicable spouse in the world. They may be the worst husband that you can imagine. They're no Christian. They are not Christ-like. They have not been transformed. They have not been conformed to the image of Jesus, not in any sense of the word. I would want my child to have a door, an exit that allows them to leave that situation. And God gave that. We talked about that in our first two parts. He did that. And whenever we fail to recognize that that is the case and that that same God who allowed the Israelites to divorce in cases of abuse and neglect, according to Exodus 21, whenever we deny that that still exists in a framework for us today, that that's still an option for us to do so without sinning at all, then we fail to recognize, like just like you said, the kind of God we serve. It's a reflection of our view of God more than it is anything else. Yeah, yeah. Mar marriage was made for mankind. Uh, mankind was not made for marriage. Ma mankind was not made for marriage, and and that's what we have to just always keep as a backdrop. So, man, I tell you, I think we we covered uh, covered it tonight. Um, <laughs> two and a half hours, yeah. man, and we. I hope people are listening, though. I hope that this has been official because 
most people who are in these types of situations, as I said, I think at the very first episode, you really can't get enough if you're really trying to study through. And so that's why we've wanted people to see in depth our thought patterns. This is not something we take lightly. This is not something where I just read a couple of articles and said, okay, I'm ready to go. Uh, this has been years of study, years of converting out of a previous position, kicking and screaming to come to the position I'm in. Um, yes. because I, it's uncomfortable to change. And this is one of the first things I ended up changing on. And so, you know, it's this, this is, if you have any questions, not just for our Q and a, but if you have any questions at all, we want to be a soundboard. We want to be a listening ear. We're here to help and we will pray, pray with you, pray for you and continue to just give you what we believe is, is sound doctrine on this topic and, and any topics for that matter. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. We're here to be a part of the change that needs to take place within the culture of the churches of Christ and within the cultures of, of Christianity in general. You know, our mission is to provide a place where these discussions can happen because it's not easy to, to talk about our doubts. It's not easy to talk about the things we don't know or the things that we might consider or think about that run counter to our particular subculture that we exist in. We recognize, Kevin and I both recognize how hard that can be. And so we're here with you. We know how that feels. If you need somebody, give us a shout. Once again, we want to thank our audience. We want to thank you all so much for your patient listening. Thank you so much for engaging, for sharing this podcast with others. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Leave us a nice five-star review in the Google Play Store. I've noticed that our podcast isn't available on Google right now for some reason, so I'll need to try to fix that. But please share our podcast far and wide. Engage with us on the Facebook discussion board. Kevin and I are both on there. We both share things on there. We both are on there. Holler at us and let us know what topics you'd like to hear us discuss in the future. We stand at your service. We love you all. We love all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we bid you all God bless. Next week, the Q&A, and then we'll move on to some new material. So thank you all once again, and have a blessed, blessed day.